Watch comics! Hey, Michael. Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. But you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Um, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. That's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. We talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics, and then we talk about them, because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then we sing badly. Yes, well, badly is purely subjective. But how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Ages comics every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com. Welcome to Back to the Bins. My name is Scott Gardner, and this time I have the pleasure and honor of being joined by one of my friends in the podcasting community, Mr. Andrew Leyland. Did I pronounce that right this time, sir? Excellent. Well done. All that <laughs> practice that I've done with you has finally paid off. It's like giving you elocution lessons in Gatesboro. that properly? <laughs> Thank you very much for the invite. It's a pleasure to be here. Always an honor to be on Two True Freaks, especially when it's one, two, three. <laughs> Oh, sometimes it's better when it's... Oh, no, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Diss him all you want. He's not here. No, That's no. it. He doesn't listen to this one either, I'm pretty sure. He'll never, he'll never know. No one will tell him. <laughs> <laughs> now it'll be all over the board, you want. Yes. <laughs> he'll be getting PMs. Hey, you know, you know Scott's dissing you on your other show? Uh, <laughs> Uh, but Andrew, together with his son Michael, they do the ever-excellent Hey Kids Comics podcast, which if you aren't listening to it, well, you just you got to, all right? It's, it's just required at this point. It's an excellent show. It is laugh-out-loud funny, and uh, you will enjoy it. So if you're not listening to it, give it a try. It is a really, really good show. And I feel so badly. I feel like I owe you a personal apology because I am so far behind right now. But I have been getting caught up. I've been listening to it literally... Every day this week on my rides to and from work, I've been, uh, uh, surprisingly, I have been really enjoying uh, the Night's Quest coverage, because I, I, frankly, I I think I told you this before, I was kind of dreading it, I was like, ah, Night's Quest, but I actually been really getting into it, because I really don't know much of the story, so it was one of those, like, 
having a prejudice about something I really didn't know all that much about to begin with. So I've been enjoying it very much. And you guys are just funny anyway. So it's one of those things where, you know, you kind of transcend what it is you're talking about. And I told you that before. You you guys had covered something, what was it, a while ago, where it was one of, oh, it was Daredevil. Which, again, was one of those subjects like, oh, God, Daredevil. But then you you just, by the, the nature of the show, you made it a very entertaining listen. So. Oh, thank you very much. That's, thank you. That's, that's, thank you. <laughs> well, it's, I think it's the rare podcast that can do that. You know what I mean? That, that can take a subject that you may not be personally interested in at all and make it something that was very entertaining through comedy and just the, the passion of the, of, you know, of the presenters. Thank you very much. Well, we've made no secret of the fact that you'll get off your ass and make a podcast was the reason we got off our ass and made a podcast. <laughs> so, uh, thank you very much. If, hey, if don't don't blame a- us. <laughs> I'm sorry. If it's funny, it's only because we fix it in post. <laughs> uh, sorry about the smoke alarm, though. Angela was cooking the children's tea. <laughs> well, you know, you wouldn't be the first uh, podcaster whose house caught on fire while we were recording. It's may- maybe it's us. Maybe we're just bad luck. <laughs> Flame on! <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, I think I forgot to tell the listeners what we were are actually going to be talking about this time. But it is something that uh, is near and dear to the both of us, and we are very very excited. Uh, you and I were actually just kind of talking back and forth through what was it skype or facebook or something the other day and we were like hey you know what we ought to do we ought to get together and we ought to talk about this so here we are we are together and we are going to be talking about the six million dollar (laughs) man just about everything to do with it so uh I'm gonna let you uh, take the take the lead on this one, and I want to hear your six million dollar man origin story. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I was born in '72, and I, I think the, the three pilot episodes aired in the U.S. in '73, I think, or thereabouts. So we probably got it in '74, '75. Sorry, we're normally 12 months behind. Um, I remember watching it every week. It was on over here, I think, on Thursday evenings. It would clash with Top of the Pops. So I would have to have an argument with my auntie, kind of like my sister. I think I've mentioned before an hour show I didn't grow up with my parents. I grew up with my grandparents because my mum went through a, a messy divorce and I was three. So my auntie Jill is more like my elder sister. And every week it would be like, well, it's my turn to watch The Six Million Dollar Man. And then it was her turn to watch Top of the Pops and, and Vicky Burton. Um, it was on about 7.30. Um, I, I was just fascinated by the show. I always liked science fiction and fantasy and all of that stuff. I think it was the first show of its type that I got into. I think it probably predates my interest in Star Trek and Jerry Anderson's stuff and, and all of that. It was just a fun show. I liked it. That's pretty much the origin story. I do remember that after all of that messy divorce stuff, my mum met uh, our Peter, my stepdad, who moved in and they got married. And um, He's a great guy, Peter, much, much more in common with him than I ever had with my dad. And uh, he brought with him boxes of comics, mostly the British reprint stuff, Planet of the Apes Weekly and Dracula Lives Weekly and Mighty World of Marvel, Spider-Man Comics Weekly, all that stuff, and pulp novels. He was and still is a fan of the pulp novels. He had all the Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter from Mars, um, all the Tarzan books, the Remo Williams, the Destroyer, and he also had this novel, Cyborg by Martin Caden, which I, I recognized from the end credits of the show. 
I was always one of those people, I, th- I suspect like you as well, once I like something, I want to know more about it. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, so finding the novel was brilliant. I don't know if the US editions had the same covers as the British editions. The cover he had, had Steve Austin stood on the cover, kind of partially turned away from you, almost in profile. Like His, uh, his arm was the dominant feature of the cover, bent at the elbow with the, the, the fist clenched. All the skin pulled back to reveal his bionics. It was a fantastic cover. Very similar to the effect they would do later, you know, in the Terminator movies and with Luke's hand in Return of the Jedi and that stuff. So I, I read the novel, but we're going back 30-odd years now. I was only about 9 or 10 when my mum remarried. Um, mostly my memory of the novel is, is, is of the bionics. In the, in the novel, his eyes just a camera. You can't see out of it. It takes photos. I think it was a telephoto lens, but I, I could be wrong about that. Um, and he's running. He couldn't run much faster than a normal person, but he could do it forever because the bionics were doing all the work. He didn't get tired. And his left arm was the bionic one in the book rather than his right arm, which I understand is simply because Lee Majors was right-handed. He didn't want to hinder the actor with um, a, an obvious hindrance if he did, could avoid it. And he had a dart gun in his bionic arm. Um, they're, the, they're the major differences. I don't remember the plot. I don't remember if the plot was the same as, as the TV show pilot movie, for example. I don't remember any of that. I just remember the, the differences between the powers. Hmm. One of these days, I've got to hunt that down and, uh, and read it for myself. Because it's definitely one of those that I've always wanted to read. And, and you're absolutely right. I am exactly the same way when I really get into something. Um, I, I always want to, to embrace all of it. And especially if something came out of a novel, you know, something that I really, really like, I was thinking about this recently when uh, I was watching die hard for like the umpteenth time that, uh, one of these days I've got to track down like the original book that it came from and read it. Cause I, I'm very much like that. I, I love to go back and, I, I like ex- exploring those sorts of things to find both the similarities and the differences. You know, what, what was different about the original origin and stuff like that. So, Where it came from. I mean, I know um, Caden wrote three sequels, I think. Uh, there's definitely a Cyborg 4. But at the same time, they were adapting episodes of the TV show into novels. Right. And it kind of gets a bit confusing over which does what and goes where. See, those are the ones I think I'm familiar with are the ones that were the novels that were coming out that were actually based on the television series rather than based on Caden's original book. I don't think I've ever read any of those. Or if I have, I didn't realize that they were sequels to the original book because they probably had covers on them that were showing um, Lee Majors and you know with images from the television show. And they would also, in the, in the adaptations of the episodes, they would change Steve Austin to be more like Caden's novels. Mm-hmm. So he, he would have the dark gun that he doesn't have in the TV show and, and all that. And it got a bit confusing. Right. The um, only novel I can... Because I, I, I know I have several of them in my, in my collection. I'm just not sure which, if any of them, I've ever actually read. The only one I know for sure that I ever read was uh i used to get books through the uh the scholastic book uh, book club when i was a kid and there was a scholastic book club edition 
it may have been the only edition. I'm not sure. But the one I have was through the Scholastic Book Club, and it was uh, The uh, Secret of Bigfoot Pass, which may or may not have been a novelization of the Bigfoot episodes. I can't remember. I don't know if it's an, if it's an original story or if it's, it's an adaptation. But I read that when I was a kid, and it was kind of a wacky read. And it was definitely it was a, what, what they would call today like a junior novel. You know, it, it was definitely aimed at the kids. Yeah, yeah. The, the novel skewed slightly older. I mean, the other big difference in the novel was he, he was a an army colonel. I mean, I can't remember whether he was a Vietnam veteran. I mean, depending on when the novel was published, but he was definitely a veteran of some description which was something they moved away from completely in the pilot film. Right. Kind of brought back a bit for the series that followed. Uh, Did you have the toy? Yes. The doll. The doll with the the red tracksuit on. Yep. Yep. The $6 million man has a sticker on his chest. I loved that. That is still to this day one of my absolute favorite toy memories as a kid was uh, was the $6 million man figure. I so badly wish I, I had a really... You know, really nice condition one today, but uh, I have no idea what uh, what happened to my original six million dollar man figure. Also, I may have no. I had two of them, and I don't know what happened to it. The first one I had came with the engine block. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the more popular one, where his 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 plastic hand didn't move, did it? It was just a, you put the engine block in and then cranked up that red button on his back, right? And it would make kind of a noise. And you could look through the back of his head for his bionic eye. But that one broke. I broke. I don't know how I broke it. I don't remember the circumstances. And my gran bought me another one. But this time he had like a snap hand. And it came with an orange girder that he lifted up instead of the engine block. So that was, that was quite interesting. And the, did you have the, um, the recharge facility? I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, we were talking about that before, uh, off air, before we got started, and I I can't remember what the name of the thing was, and I'm pretty sure that the one I had, um, that I got it secondhand, like at 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 a yard sale or a garage sale or something, because I don't remember it having all the pieces, because I remember that it would fold out into like a, like, it was like an operating table or something. Yeah, you could plug bits into it, you roll the four Right. Bionic arm. <laughs> right. <laughs> bits into it. That's a nasty way to put it, but it is, it's very accurate. <laughs> and you plug bits into the, li- the two little bionic pieces that were in his arm. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Uh, yeah, because uh, all my friends would lose the bionic pieces out of theirs, and I was very proud of the fact that I, I had all the original pieces to my, my $6 million man. And, uh, you, you sit him in it. It's like a recharge facility. I don't know if he needs <laughs> recharging, but... See, the, the reason why I, I'm pretty sure I got mine secondhand was there, there were these great comic book ads in all the comics at the time mm-hmm. for that figure. And then as the subsequent toys started to come out, there were ads for all the other toys. And I remember the ad for that recharging station showed the wires, you know, and they were just little plastic things that you would plug into his bionics. And I never had those, so I'm pretty sure we picked that thing up at a yard sale somewhere for probably like a buck or something. But what I liked about it was when you folded it up, you could put him inside of it, and it looked like a cross between like a space capsule and like a cryogenic chamber or something, because yeah. you could see his, his face through the little window. Yeah, like a, like a rocket ship thing. Yeah, yeah. I loved that thing. He's got a 
a maskatron no i always wanted one but no i i i don't know that i ever even saw that in stores or anything but i wanted one because he had the different faces which i thought was really cool which was oscar yeah Gugulma was one when you pull the face off it looked like the in westworld <laughs> his face comes off yeah, yeah, Maskatron was brilliant. I never had a, a Lindsay Wagner doll. You know, I was just going to ask, because it, it seemed to me that there was a, a, a Bionic Woman doll, but I couldn't remember exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the special features on the DVD, Ken Johnson bangs on about how the first year that was out, it sold better than Barbie. Wow. I, I never had a Bionic Woman doll. That was too much like a doll. So this series is out on DVD now? Yes, it's uh, it got a, a very expensive 40 disc box set wow wow in america by time life um that included all of the series the um the three tv movies that followed the series in the the late 80s early 90s um all the bionic woman episodes that crossed over with it and shed loads of interviews with ken johnson and hal bennett and lindsey wagner and richard anderson and the brilliant 90 minute interview with lee majors where he talks about how he got the part and, and all that stuff. It's fantastic. It's really good. I, I, I need to track that down and try to, to catch that, because I have all the episodes that I've gotten through um, <clears throat> various sources, but you know nothing with any uh, you know DVD extras, so yeah. to speak. And I, 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 a lot of times with stuff like this, I'm actually more interested in that stuff than <laughs> re-watching the actual episodes. Because I started a rewatch of the series not long ago, and sadly I didn't get very far. But it wasn't so much like the quality of the series or anything. I, I just kind of got busy with it, mm-hmm. you know, with other things and watching other shows. But one, I, I need to do that, sit down and actually start rewatching the series because uh, I, I still think it holds up very well, at least until it gets to its kind of silly phase, which sadly is what I think, you know, it, it seems like most of the, the comments you see people saying about the series or what you know it's kind of dogging on it for some of the the later silliness so i think it, it gets an undeserved reputation based on where it would eventually go rather than what it originally was well, if you know what i mean yeah it with everything it's contextual isn't it it's what they could afford at the time special effects limitations i mean there was talk of a movie not long ago with jim curry as oh, steve austin and uh, he said, well, the title's The Six Million Dollar Man, so you can see what we're going to mine for the humor. And I just wanted to gouge his eyes out with a spoon. <laughs> anywhere near my bionic man if you're not going to do a proper job with it. Because it's a fantastic concept. It is. It's, it is. Especially now, with the leaps forward we've made in prosthetics for veterans in the army who've been injured and people in car crashes and stuff like that. There's so much that you could do with it if you play it straight and play it for real. And the minute he was attached to it, I was just like, oh, God. Well, that, uh, that whole gouging his eyes out thing, you, you feel free because uh, you, you have my permission. <laughs> I, don't think, uh, I don't think much of Jim Carrey. And, uh, yeah, I remember when they were bandying that idea about, and I was just like, oh, please, dear Jesus, please don't let this ever come to fruition. And thank God that it didn't because that, that would have just... Yeah, yeah, it would have been it would have been awful. And knowing my luck, it would end up being, you know, some huge box office success and then it would spawn all kinds of movies. And then the original awesomeness of of the original concept would be completely forgotten in place of some crappy new franchise, which seems to happen a lot lately, doesn't it? Oh, can't think of what you may be alluding to. (laughs) 
so do you want to do you want to talk about the pilot film and then go into the comics? Absolutely, yeah. Let's. Uh, we both uh, just rewatched the uh, the pilot to kind of refresh ourselves on that, and uh, yeah, I had to actually cheat and and look it up today as far as what year that actually was because when we were watching it yesterday, my my children were in the room watching it with me. And asked me at one point, you know, what what year is this anyway? And I was struggling to try to remember. And just on a complete guess, I said 75. So I wasn't far off. The, the original TV movie was actually sometime in 73. Right. Which, which makes it much older than I remembered it to be. I, I thought it was more toward the end of, uh, of the 70s. But it was actually, no, right there at the beginning of the 70s. And I don't know as a kid that I ever saw the pilot. If I saw the pilot, I don't remember it. I think I, I, I more came into the series when it was actually, you know, playing as a series and was just a big deal. Because, you know, for me personally, this series would be like, you know, th- this was my equivalent of like, say, something like uh, Davy Crockett back in the 50s, you know, which was a huge TV phenomenon. You know, I remember Six Million Dollar Man being pretty much the same way. It was just it was like the geek equivalent of like Davy Crockett It was huge. You know, there was it was everywhere. There were, you know, the action figures and the comics and records and lunch boxes. I mean, it was everywhere. I I remember uh, one year I was uh, I was Steve Austin for Halloween. There was a great Steve Austin Halloween costume and it was the red tracksuit. And then you had Lee Major's face for a mask, which is oh, one of those plastic things. Yeah, <laughs> like it was, Yeah, it was great. I I loved it. So I was a huge, huge fan of uh, of this series when it was out. Yeah, well, it was it was huge over here as well in the UK. It was one of the first American television shows to be really massive. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I mean, around that time, you're looking at Starsky and Hutch as well, which I think was bigger over here than it was in the states. But over here, Lee Majors and Farrah Fawcett were like were kind of like the the vanguard of this celebrity culture that we have now. They were on the cover of tabloid newspapers. The marriage made the news. This right. is how they were, and it, it kind of it, it is it is something that's kind of been forgotten how huge the show was. Right. Yeah, I think so too. It, it was. It was a it was a major deal in its time. And, uh, yeah, I, I wonder, you know, sometimes, it, it, you know, how I, I know that people like around our age remember it and everything, but I wonder like, cause it seems like anybody I ever talk to these days or anytime it ever comes up for conversation, it's just one of those eye roll kind of things. Like, Oh God, yeah, yeah. that was a silly, but it really wasn't. No, it really isn't. I'm I'm halfway through series three. I started rewatching it last Christmas when I got the things and like, I've been taking it slowly. Because mm-hmm. it is one of those things where the pace is glacial by yes, today's yes. standard. Yeah. But to and include in the middle of series three, it's still pretty straight. It's still being played pretty straight. There's very little campiness in it. I mean, the pilot episode that we both watched is fantastic, I think. It's so different in its tone from even the subsequent series that would follow it. Right. right. Definitely completely different from the two more telly movies that followed the pilot but preceded the series. But uh, Lee Majors is the only carryover from the series, from the film to the series, sorry. The get rid of Darren McGavin as Oliver Spencer, which is a real shame. Because it is, Darren yeah. McGavin 
He's is, great in that. He's, he's fantastic in everything. Kolchak, isn't he? Yeah. But he's, yeah, he, he is Kolchak, and he's uh, he's the father in um, in Christmas Story, which I don't know about in England, but over here in the United States, that has become a Christmas staple. That it, uh, on Christmas, it's usually Christmas Eve over to Christmas Day. They'll play it repeatedly for 24 hours straight a christmas story just over and over and over again do you know the movie i'm talking about i we got that over here it's uh it's the movie it's uh it's got darren mcgavin plays the father um and uh oh god i can't melinda dillon jillian from close encounters close encounters yeah. plays the mother and then it's it's the story of this little boy. He wants a BB. He wants a Red Rider BB gun for Christmas, and everybody keeps telling him, "You'll shoot your eye out, kid." Do, do you know the movie I'm talking about? Never seen that. See, I think that I think that's an American thing, but it's yeah. a great movie if you ever get to see it. It's called. It's the name of it's literally just a Christmas story. Is the name of the movie, and Darren McGavin plays the father in that. And one of the major parts of the movie in that is he wins a major award and he, he's play, he, he plays crossword puzzles and he wins a major award and he has no idea what it is. And on Christmas Eve, it shows up at their house and it's this giant wooden box and he pries it open with a crowbar and he digs inside of it and he pulls it out and it's a leg lamp. It's the, like the gaudiest, ugly, th- ugliest thing you've ever seen in his life. And he puts it like right in front of the family window, much to his wife's chagrin. <laughs> and I, I say all that only to say that it occurred to me as we were watching the pilot. And during the course of the story, they take both of Steve Austin's legs in the a- accident. I think somewhere <laughs> the Darren McGavin character in Six Million Dollar Man has two of those leg lamps now that are actually Steve Austin's legs. So. Has him in his room at Christmas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but he's, he is fantastic in this. Oliver Spencer, who isn't in, if I remember correctly, it is Oscar Goldman in the novel. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why it wasn't Oscar Goldman in the pilot film. But he's he's so slimy and evil and wonderfully played by McGavin. He, he just views Steve as a commodity right, all the right. way through this. The guy, as far as he's concerned, is dead. Doesn't matter what we do with him, and if he dies, well, we'll just we'll just build another one. Right, he doesn't right. occur. And in, there's the kind of thing that if they hadn't replaced him with Richard Anderson, I doubt that given the time the series was made, he would have remained that antagonistic anyway. I think they would have changed the relationship to be more a father son big brother little thing. Like Probably, yeah. I would. I would imagine that eventually the 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 relationship between them would come to be much like the relationship between the the two characters in uh, Greatest American Hero. I, I can't remember the names of either of the characters, but you know, you had Robert Culp. Uh, at least I think it was Robert Culp. Yeah, Robert Culp was Bill Maxwell. Bill Maxwell. That's right. Yeah, Bill Maxwell, and then whatever William Katz character's name uh, was. Yeah, I think it would become much more like that dynamic. Yeah, but so it's a shame he didn't go to series. And certainly now, they would play up his ambiguity a lot more than they would have ever done back then. Mm-hmm. But he was, he was fantastic in it, and I was quite sorry to see him go. I, I was sorry to see... You know, the, the character of Rudy Wells sticks around, but this actor that's in the pilot doesn't play Rudy um, yeah, the, in the series. In the series, don't they? They recast him. Yeah, which is a shame because, you know, it's it's this episode is narrated as being uh, Rudy's story. You know, he's the one that's telling us the story of Steve Austin and how he came to be, you know, a, a bionic man. And it's it's a shame because that I thought that actor did a phenomenal job. 
Yeah, he was he was great, and they, they replaced him twice in the series. He was followed in the first and second season by Alan Hoppenheimer, probably mm-hmm. more famous for being the voice of Skeletor. In the oh, human. really? <laughs> and he was again replaced in the third season and onwards, and in the Bionic Woman show by Martin E. Brooks. So they went through a couple of Rudy Wellses, which was interesting. I don't know if you remember the Seven Million Dollar Man episodes from later on in the series. It was Alan Oppenheimer in the first Seven Million Dollar Man episode. But by the time they brought that character back in the third season, he'd been replaced by Martin E. Brooks. But what they had to do was bring Alan Oppenheimer back for that one show so they could show flashbacks to the previous episode. Oh, of the that's hysterical. No, I didn't. See, I, need to, I really need to get serious about my rewatch because I started a rewatch of this around the time that I acquired the whole series. And sadly, I didn't make it very far, which doesn't, I know, sound like a glowing endorsement of the series. But it had nothing to really to do with the series. I just got busy doing other things. Um, but I, I really need to start rewatching it because I got so far as uh, I think the the last one I watched was the one where it starts out and it's very, very dark. And it looks like this entire town has been killed, like like by a plague or something. And they send Steve in in like a hazmat suit. And then I forget where it goes from there. But it, at the beginning of that episode was very dark. Yeah. And, the, uh, season, the entire first season is. And there's a lot of various similitude to the science of it. They put a lot of effort into to making the science believable in the first season. And the pilot, one of my favorite bits in the pilot, is where he's running through the desert at the end. But he's not sweating under his bionic arm. You know, I didn't even catch that. I didn't even catch that. There's a lot of that in the first season where they go to great efforts to explain how his bionics work, but also how they won't work. In extreme cold, his bionics start malfunctioning. I think I remember that. Don't they, they like lock him in a freezer in an episode or something like that? Talking about, I think it may be that one. They lock him in a freezer at the end of the episode and his bionics start malfunctioning. And there's a later first season episode where he goes into space with the first female astronaut uh, played by Farrah Fawcett. And he can't do anything out in space because his bionics will freeze. So she has to do everything. And that's a really good one. Written by DC Fontana. That's a really good episode. And now and I've got to get serious about my uh, my rewatch of this now because I, I I rewatched the pilot yesterday in anticipation of uh, of talking about it in this episode and was was just taken right back to how much I, I really enjoy this. Although it was fun for me to to note the uh, you know of course this is a pilot you know so pilots are always very different from the series that follows but there were such serious uh, omissions from what we've come to think of as like you know. The six, you know, what encapsulates the six million dollar man, and and two of the big things I noticed, or actually three of the big things, was you know, as you mentioned, there's no Oscar Goldman um, in the pilot, but also they don't use the slow mo. For when he's running or doing things at bionic speed, which I got to be honest, is is one of those things that always, even as a kid, annoyed the hell out of me. Is uh, you know, look, he's supposed to be running at super speed. Yeah, every time he would run, they would show him in slow mo, and it's like, why? Why are they doing that? I want to, even if it would look silly if they sped up the film, 
I'd really rather see that, you know, even if it looked like Benny Hill or something, <laughs> then I would you know, see him running it slow, you know, in slow motion because they would do that all the time. And now as an adult, I kind of suspect sometimes they may have done that to pad out the, the running time of the episode. Maybe I'm, I'm not sure. There's an element of that, but you're not thinking the pilot, they did a really good job of it because the shots of him running are speeded up, sped up. But from a very long, very far. Makes sense of that in English, Andrew. It's from a, a distance. Right. It doesn't look quite as stupid as it, as it could look. But they superimpose Lee Majors running in slow-mo over the top of it. Right. And I think that looks really good in the pilot. I, it worked. It worked. I mean, I could tell it was sped up because the first it, time we saw it, everybody in the room kind of snickered a little bit that you, you could tell it was sped up. But again, I would rather see that than the slow-mo thing because the slow-mo thing just looks odd. You know, yeah. it, it, it's it's like, okay, you're running at super speed, but we're seeing it in slow-mo. How does that – where do you arrive at that editorial decision? I, I just don't know how that works. When the, the, there is an extra feature interview with Hal Bennett where he does say it just became – it did look stupid in the editing room. And they go through the entire first season – Without having the no 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 special effects or anything, and it's, it's oh says, really it's the whole first because yeah. I wondered about that I thought it was just the pilot because that was my other note is that you know the the bionic sound is not in the pilot. No, it's the, the entire first season doesn't have any of the, the bionic sound effect, and he says in the special features it was when they went into the second season they got picked up for a full year. I mean, he says they got picked up very quickly, as is the norm with these things. Do you want to do the Six Million Dollar Man's a TV show? You're on the air in four weeks. So that entire first season is done very quickly. It's still the best season, showing that people can do really good work under the gun. But yeah, like you said, there's so much missing. I mean, the, the pilot episode doesn't have Oliver Nelson do the music. So there's none of the familiar da-da-da-da. There's none of that in it. Right. Oh, but that's why I like the pilot. It is so completely removed from what you remember of the series that mm-hmm. it smacks you around the face with how different it is. It is very different. That's what I like about it. One thing I noticed that that really shocked me is uh, all of what I what you know the the two probably the two things that I remember and associate the most with the six million dollar man, and I I would imagine it's probably the same for your average man on the street. If you walked up and said. You know what to you says the six million dollar man. They would probably do the no 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 sound and also, you know, the whole beginning of, of the you know the the mm. the opener to the show. You know the the theme song. You know the th- so called theme song, although it didn't really have one. And none of the the what I like to call NASA jargon that starts the show. I was I, I was literally on the edge of my seat watching the crash. Uh, sequence of the pilot waiting for him to say things like, okay, NASA one. And you know, I, I, you know, she's had a blowout, you know, I, I can't control it and oh, stuff. And he doesn't say any of the, none of that is actually in the pilot. And I was like, wow, really? So they basically created all of that for at some point in the future when they had to have a title open sequence. Yeah. Cause the opening credits make it quite clear. Oscar is the right crash, which is completely untrue. From watching the pilot, yeah, none of that's in there. There's a couple of shots, of close-up shots of Lee Majors, and uh, the stock footage of the actual crash is in the the opening credits. But a lot of it looks refilmed and it's redubbed, and all of that's completely different. The first season doesn't even have the da 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 musical sting at the end of the credits. Right. 
it has the opening narration and then a little bit of a dun 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 at the end and that's it. So none of that's in, in the first season. I did like that they defined the word cyborg for you (laughs) at the beginning of the show. And I do wonder if that's because it was going to be called cyborg or, or if I'm just making that up because the novel is called cyborg. No, I I think I have heard that before that that's what they wanted to go with. And then somebody made the the decision that uh, for whatever reason, that $6 million man just sounded, I don't know, better for television or something. I I don't know. I I have heard the story of why they changed it. And now I can't remember what the, what the whole deal was, but it was one of those, you know, TV executive decisions, which, you know, $6 million, man, that's, that it's kind of a mouthful, you know, Mm -hmm. and especially, you know, when you would have to list it, you know, in a, in a TV listing or something like that, you know, it, it fills up a good portion of the screen when they would do the little adverts or whatever. Yeah. Um, Stephen Bochco did an uncredited rewrite on the, the pilot. Now, who is this? Stephen Bochco went on to do Hill Street Blues. Oh, okay. And, all, and he was the, the kind of guy who pioneered the whole cross-story structure of American television when you, you, when you started doing that in the 80s. Hill Street was the first thing to do that. And it was his rewrite that got the pilot picked up, is my understanding from the special features. Again, I don't remember how much of that is in the novel. But certainly, the they play Steve's emotions for real in this. He doesn't want to be a freak. He, he right. wishes they'd let him die in many ways. And uh, Lee Majors gets a lot of stick. I'll always love Lee Majors. But, and I think in this pilot, he shows he is a much better actor than he gets given credit for. Oh, is he uh, is he dogged? I don't really. I've never really heard people dog on him. I've heard a lot of people dog the series, mm. but he, you know, I, I I don't know. Is he held in like a Shatner esque regard or something not, like that? As like Shatner, he's he's not regarded as an actor with a great range. Oh, but, I gotcha. Yeah, I I think he he really sells this part in this show, and as if you carry on working through the series. He plays Steve Austin very similar to how Christopher Reeve would play Superman. He's a very humble guy who kind of gets embarrassed when he's recognized in the street for being an astronaut. They do have scenes where he'll be walking out of a, of a restaurant or something and somebody will go, hey, you're, you're Steve Austin. Can I have your own? And he's, he kind of downplays it. And there's a look where he goes back home and they have a sign outside where he lives, home of Steve Austin. <laughs> Now, see, I don't know about. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've really watched precious little of uh, of Lee Majors outside of the Six Million Dollar Man, so I don't know about the rest of his his acting range or what. But in this particular role, at least like in the pilot, he sold it for me because he he's very believable as being not only an astronaut but a, but an actual moonwalker mm. because he I, I like. Uh, you know, he, he has kind of a cocky test, you know, fighter pilot type of thing down. Like a lot of those guys were, you know, like say like an Alan Shepard or somebody like that, you know, the, the cocky, you know, uh, and also, you know, given to, to mood swings and stuff. But then later on in the thing, he has kind of a, a, a taciturn attitude, which reminds me a lot of someone like say, uh, Neil Armstrong, you know, where, where, you know, here he had, you know, this, this, what anybody else would consider to be this huge honor, 
where to him it almost became a bit of a burden that he couldn't go anywhere or do anything without being known for this one thing that he had done in his life. And so there were aspects in the pilot where Steve didn't want to, you know, as you say, didn't want to be a freak or didn't want to be, uh, you know, this removed from from humanity, or at least that's how he felt in his own mind, where I could see a lot of like real life parallels to real moonwalkers and, and you know, what they were like after coming back from the moon. And I, I found that to be very realistic, whether it was intentional or not. I found the parallels kind of interesting and kind of striking in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, he's like that in the series. He is—he's very confident in himself and his own abilities, which you know, someone like that would have to be. You can't send him out into space with somebody who's going to constantly second guess himself. But he is—he he, does—he does try to downplay it a lot. Is—is is what he's achieved. And um, I, I like that as well. I do like that he, he's quite humble in his achievements, but he, he, he knows what he's doing and how to do it and how to get it done. One thing I thought was absolutely hysterical, and I, I suppose a lot of this comes from just my, my own uh, fascination and interest with the real space program of the time, you know, the, the whole, you know, Apollo program and everything. I love the opening, you know, the opening uh, bits of the pilot where we actually see Steve, you know, strapped into a rocket and he goes to the moon. And it's funny because they're constantly cutting to these reaction shots of Rudy Wells watching, you know, the beginning of the mission, the launch, you know, when Steve goes out for a spacewalk for whatever reason. And then eventually where he gets to the moon and he's there and he's walking around and they keep cutting to these reactions of Rudy, and it gives you the impression that all of this happens in a very tight window of time, and that Rudy is literally like standing by the monitor watching this the entire time. Um, it takes days to get to the moon. Yeah. So, I mean, did Rudy just stand there next to this computer for like two or three days? Because that's kind of the impression that the pilot gives you. Yeah. And then right up until the very last shot of Steve getting back into the, the space capsule to come back to Earth, up until that moment, you never see another astronaut. So until that last shot where it finally shows someone else standing on the surface and then shows Steve get into the ship again, it really gives the impression that he was by himself mm. through the whole thing, which couldn't happen i mean you you can't get to the you know back in those days anyway you know with the with the way that that program worked you couldn't do that all one person yeah but then there is that that last shot that shows him walk away from another astronaut which is weird because it the way it's filmed and it has a surreal look to the direction in that almost looks like he walks away from himself you know kind of like when 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 Clark Kent, you know, when he depowered himself in Superman 2 and he like walks away and leaves Superman behind in the crystal chamber, that scene almost looks that way. Like, like Steve's walking away from a double of himself and leaving that double behind on the moon. <laughs> but it's weird because they never name the other character. He never talks to the other character. And there, there was a moment where I actually had that thought of, wait a minute, is this supposed to be some weird surrealistic representation of him leaving a piece of himself behind on the moon? 
or am I reading too much? And eventually I was like, well, no, this is just, it's, they're showing you that, no, he wasn't alone, that there, this actually was, you know, a two person team, like it would really have to be, you know, were it real. But I just, for that split second, I had that thought of, Ooh, that's kind of weird and deep, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the use of stock footage at the beginning is really good. Yes. It's, there's not, the footage isn't particularly grainy or looks like it's been ripped from somewhere else, like a lot of stock footage sometimes does. It really does fit in with the story that they're telling. And the crash, even now, that crash is astonishing to think that the guy in that aeroplane really did walk away alive. Right. It's, it's quite a stunning crash that that guy must have gone through. Trying to think trying to what think else what... I've got of this. Oh, uh, I was very proud of myself that uh, watching this again. The last time I watched this, I kept looking at the nurse that <laughs> Steve ends up having the little That's fling what? with and thinking, I know this chick from something and just could not nail down where I knew her from. You know, the Star Trek girl. Yeah, she was uh, Lenore Caridian in um, The Conscience of the King. She's the one that goes all nuts at the end of the episode. Yes, she is. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it suddenly hit me out of nowhere. I was like, wait, 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 I know this girl. But yeah, the first time I watched this, I, which was maybe a year or so ago, I was like, it was just bugging me the whole time, but I couldn't put it together. But yeah, all of a sudden it jumped out this time, and I was like, ah, that's right, she crazy. <laughs> Well, I recognized her from Star Trek. I couldn't have told you what episode she was from. Um, all told, I like the pilot. I think it stands alone from the series. I like the Marvel Comics feel to it. Yes. It, it, it is very Marvel in that they're paying a lot of time and attention to his character. All, if you look at it, the, the mission is only really the last, what, 20 minutes of the film? Yeah, it's not long at all, because I kept looking at, at, you know, every so often during some of the slow moments, I kept looking at the running time, and the whole beginning of the of the pilot, right up until the crash and everything, that's the entire first episode. Mm. And so then they have to fit everything as far as his getting fitted out with bionics and coming around to accept the mission... <laughs> And then eventually going to the mission all in the second half, which is only a 45-minute episode. Which one did you watch? I watched uh, the two-part of the, um, what is it called? Moon and... Moon and the Stars. Moon and the Star, Moon in the Desert, something like that. Yeah. The the two-part episode you watched is the syndicated re-edit where they put in Uh, a lot of extra footage. After the the series was cancelled, they cut all the three movies that preceded the series into two-part episodes but the pilot is only 74 minutes so they had to put extra footage in to beef up the runtime i've never seen the moon in the desert or the moon in the stars or whatever it's called it moon is on in the moon in the desert i'm looking at it here on uh, on i'm cheating and had to look it up on wikipedia it's moon in the desert okay that is- so that actually has extra footage in it yes then. it has extra footage in it that isn't in the seven the original 74 minute pilot well, that would explain why it feels very, very padded out then, because it, it does. I, I'll be honest with you, especially by today's standards of, of how we're used to watching you know movies and television, it, it, it is slow. It does feel, I won't say like plotting or anything, because it's all very interesting, but there's a lot of it where you're just kind of like, okay, can we speed this up just a little bit? Right. So, See, uh, I, I didn't get that in the one I watched. The 75-minute pilot. 
I don't know where they split the two episodes up to, but for the first 50 or so minutes, it's like you say, it's him. It's all about him, and the, the mission is only the last 15 or 20 minutes of this. Now, so, in the one that you watched, does he save the little boy? Yes, in okay, the okay. car. Yeah, all of that scene. I think the extra footage they, they filmed is made up of stock from somewhere else in the series. I think I've read somewhere. And they brought... Oh, who plays? Who does play Rudy in the pilot? Martin Balsam. Mm-hmm. They, brought, they brought him back when the series had wrapped to film additional footage just with him to pad the pilot out. That makes sense. I mean, just just hearing that, that they had to go back and, and beef this up to make a two-parter out of it, I, I think... I can pretty much figure out where the extra stuff would have been because there there are several sequences, particularly at the beginning, you know, setting up the uh, the whatever that plane is that he's you know the experimental plane that eventually crashes. There's a lot of that where it's just a lot of stock footage, you know, and and it, it moves very very slow. And that's where a lot of my kind of, you know, circling my finger going, okay, come on, speed this up. That's where a lot of that comes from. See if you can track down the 75-minute pilot, because I think that still works. So I've never been interested in seeing the re-edited one, because the 75-minute one works as it is. It works fine. I don't know what the extra footage is. I'm I'm not interested in seeing it if it's padding. Right. But I do like that he has to be trained how to use his bionics. I love that. He doesn't just get up and he's fine. There's a, a three-month time period, though, where, they, where they're essentially teaching him how to walk again. And there's an 840-page manual that comes with it. Yeah, I thought that was a great sequence. <laughs> that was brilliant. Here's a book on how to learn how to use your own. Excellent. Well, I, I find it very interesting that uh, you know, you'd said that there's a Mar- uh, Marvel Comics feel to this. Because one of the, the the elements right at the tail end of the of the pilot, or at least of the version I saw, was where um, Darren McGavin's character, uh, Mister Spencer, throws out the idea to Rudy Wells. You know, could they actually make? Uh, could they basically put Steve to sleep? between assignments and and basically keep him on a shelf until they were ready for him for the next assignment. And that struck me very much as what they would eventually go with with uh with the Winter Soldier character. Yeah. In you know in in more or less current day uh Captain America stories, you know with with the Bucky character. I found that a very interesting concept. It's very sinister. You know, it's 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 very dark coming from from Spencer's character, which by this point in the pilot, you're kind of starting to warm to a little bit mm. and, and thinking that maybe, you know, maybe there was something not not as uh, as sinister as evil as he he first appeared. And then he throws that idea out there, which brings you right back full circle to know this guy's not a good person, not a nice man. Oh, yeah, a lot shadier in this pilot film than it would ever be in the series that followed. Right. Very avuncular in the series that, that would follow this. Oscar's much more, are you okay, pal? Whereas Oliver Spencer probably would have stabbed him in the back given the first opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did like as well, there is nowhere in this movie that you can fit in there being a $7 million man. It's made quite clear from the conversation between Oliver and Rudy Wells that Steve is the first person they've done this to. 
there's no wiggle room there. As it turns out in the series, as with a lot of these, because they want to do the evil twin episode, they will establish that there was a prototype kind of thing before Steve, which will be the $7 million man. I was trying to remember that because uh, I was trying to remember if he was if the seven million dollar man was the prototype or if he was uh, like you know basically like RoboCop two. I I could not remember. I that. think if I'm remembering correctly, he preceded him. I think you're right. But he's got two bionic arms, which explains the discrepancy in the price. I think uh, also you know talking. Well, we'll we'll come back to the comic talk on that because uh, I I just. It's funny. I, I had the thought that it's a shame that when this went to comics, which you know was just natural for a property like this back, you know, in the seventies and eighties, that it wasn't Marvel that got a hold of him. But we'll we'll come back to that. But uh, you know, speaking of RoboCop, I find a lot of at least of the the beginning, you know, the the origin story, let's say, of RoboCop to have a lot of similarities and a lot of callbacks to yeah. the six million dollar man. I think there's a, a lot of nods there. And it's funny because then with there being so many nods to this in RoboCop, I think in the most recent series that we'll be talking about, the the Kevin Smith uh Dynamite series, I think that there's an excellent nod back to RoboCop in that. In the yeah. fact of, as you say, you know, you know, he he, the seven million dollar man had two bionic arms. One thing that they end up doing in the Kevin Smith series that I actually thought was a brilliant decision was just like in this original pilot in the original uh, series, you know, Steve had still one good limb, which was his original left arm. Mm. But in the Kevin Smith series, they take that arm. And yeah. they, they they basically make him all bionic as far as his limbs go, which yeah. was something that I think uh, owes back to RoboCop because the same thing happened in RoboCop. They were able to salvage that one arm, and then uh, it was uh, Miguel Ferrer's character's like, "Nah, lose the arm," yeah. and so they take that one too. I, I like that, and I, so, I don't. I wonder if that if I'm right, you know, that that really is Smith. You know, owing back to RoboCop, I, I'd be very curious to know for sure. Well, they, they do make a point of mentioning in this pilot film that his left arm is damaged beyond repair. They say the nerve endings are so damaged, he probably wouldn't be able to do anything with it anyway. But then they don't follow up on that. When he's bionic, he's, his left arm's fine. Oh, I missed oh. that. I missed that entirely. I wonder if that's in the version that I saw, because I, I don't remember that. It's one line of dialogue where they're saying the damage in his spine has damaged the nerve endings in his other arm. It'd be useless to him anyway. So the implication there is they have done some kind of spinal reinforcement. Because one of the, the main physics criticisms people always had of the show was if he did lift up a car, it would just rip his bionic arm from his fleshy torso. Right. And right. that one line to me implies that they did do some kind of spinal stuff to make all this work. But like you say, it's never followed up in the show. It's never mentioned again. That was definitely a, a thought that I had watching the series again not long ago. Was there was an episode where, uh, you know, I, I, for one thing, I think it's one of those things that you know back in the day you just weren't supposed to really think about. It was episodic TV, and you were just supposed to kind of take it at face value. But also, you know, not that I think that the show was for kids necessarily, or that it was a kiddie show. Let's say. But it definitely a- appealed to young boys. You know, it definitely appealed to to kids. And so it's one of those things I never, ever would have stopped to think of when I was a, a child. But watching the series again, there was uh, the beginning of an episode where 
uh, Steve and Oscar are driving along somewhere and their car has a blowout. So they pull off the side of the road. Steve walks over, hunches over and lifts the car up with his bionic arm. And I literally hit the pause button and stood there watching that thinking, no way does that work. There's no way that works because if only his arm was bionic, what's giving him the leverage to lift that car, you know, with just yeah. reaching down and casually picking the car up, like, you know, basically using his arm as a jack, he would have to be reinforced somehow or other, because you're right. Otherwise it would just rip that arm off yeah. or, or, you know, severely injure his back. Yeah. You know, one of the two. So, yeah, I agree with you because although they never talk about it specifically, there were at least one, you know, there was at least one mention in the pilot that something was wrong with his spine. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that there had to be some sort of reinforcement going on there, which I thought was an excellent part of Smith's new series where he actually goes into that in, in you know, quite in depth where basically – they do a little bit of, uh, you know, like Wolverineization on him with, you know, giving him metal bones and that sort of thing and, and giving a plausible explanation for how could they do it and then how would that actually work as far as, you know, you, you get your, uh, what is it, the red blood cells or whatever from your bones. So if they were covered in metal, how would that work? You know, how would you be able to generate blood and fight off disease and stuff and they actually give, you know, it's, it's comic book science, but it feels plausible. And it's I liked that. Like, yeah, the, the, you can give a pass to because at least they've gone, look, we know this. We're acknowledging this limitation with real physics, but this is fiction. So we say that this works and you'll buy into it because at least we've made a point of saying, look, we know this probably wouldn't work quite like this, but we're acknowledging it. Let's move on. And I, I can buy that. I don't mind that in my, my science fiction. Right, right. I like that. I like where at least an attempt is made rather yeah. than just going, okay, you're just, you're just, you're, you're just going to have to buy that this guy can fly and shoot laser beams out of his eyes, but we're not really going to give you a, a, an explanation for it. No, I am. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not, you know, five years old anymore. I really kind of need at least a little bit of pseudo bullshit science in there to make it kind of exactly, you know. exactly the same. I, I, I hate it. When they say, well, the guy's got two bionic arms, two bionic legs and a bionic arm. You can accept that, but you can't accept this. And you're like, yes, I can't accept that. I buy into the whole bionic thing, but at least give me a plausible reason why this does what it does. And then I'll say, okay, fair enough. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, actually, I was curious. Now, have you ever read any of the, uh, the uh, original comics from... Uh, I'm sorry. Was it Gold Key? It was. Uh, I think Gold Key may have re done some of the reprints, but it was actually uh, Charlton or Carlton, depending on your, right. your pronunciation. Yeah. They had a series that they did back in. Uh, well, what I'm showing here is that the first issue came out in '76. I have spotty issues of this. I'd love to get the entire series one of these days, but I, I have a few select issues. And then they actually had a magazine at one point, which I'm not sure how many issues that ran for. And uh, I have one issue of that that uh, I'm pretty sure – let's see. here. I'm going to pull up the cover image real quick. I'm pretty sure that has a Neil Adams cover on it. But I know Adams did at least one of the covers for the uh, just the regular comic book series. And then in the first issue – 
of the comic book series, uh, Joe Staten was the penciler. Right. And the art was just fantastic in that. But I, you know, the issues I have, like I say, it's, I, I have just spotty issues. And uh, I don't remember it being very good, to be honest with you. Yeah, the, uh, the issue of the magazine I have, it was the second issue. And it's Steve in an astronaut outfit. And he's fighting a, a mountain lion. And his bionic leg is all ripped up and his bionic arm is all ripped. It's very cool. It's funny how he only gets wounds to the bionic pieces of him. You know, it, he, his left arm never gets ripped off by a mountain lion, but his bionic arm gets all torn up. It's, it's pretty, pretty cool. If that happens. No, we got the, the British annuals, <clears throat> like the Return of the Jedi one we talked about on the, the Two True Freak show. Mm-hmm. We got at Christmas, we got these hardback 64, 80 page annuals. And we had one of them for the Six Million Dollar Man from 76, I think, through to about 1980. So we had those. I don't know whether they reprinted the strips from the Carlton Comics or Charlton Comics um, or whether they made their own up because they frequently did make up their own comic strips for these annuals. But I, I had a couple of them. Hmm. I'd be curious to check that stuff out just to see you know, what that actually does entail, you know, what, what the material is that, that's in there, if that's reprinted or not. I definitely had the 1977 one, which was a, a shot of Steve holding a, a rifle in, across her. That was the cover. And um, there was a 78 one, which was more of an arty cover, but it was a picture of Lee Majors wearing a, a U.S. Air Force uniform. I definitely had those two. I brought them up on Wikipedia. I don't remember having the 79 or the 1981. I definitely had the 77 one. Well, I only have just select uh, issues of the series. Actually, it looks here like it only went nine issues, which that's not a good sign for something like this. You know, if it, you know, especially back at this time where comics were much stronger that it only went nine issues. But just on a quick glance, it, it looks like it probably went downhill pretty quick. And, and I have a little bit of evidence to support that. Like the first two issues, um, the interior art was by Joe Staten. And I, I'm a big Joe Staten fan anyway. I remember I read the first issue not long ago, and I remember it being really good. I can't now remember what the second issue was like. But the second issue has the best cover of the original um, Charlton Comics series. And it's it's a great Neil Adams cover of this guy, and he's holding an actual um, six million dollar man action figure, you know, the the red jumpsuited one, mm. and he's got the the figure with its arms out at its sides, and he's using it as a voodoo doll, and he's yeah. jabbing a needle into the bionic arm of the doll. And then the real Steve Austin is standing in the background on the cover holding his bionic arm and there's all these sparks and like it looks like fireworks or something coming out of his arm as he's grabbing, you know, grasping his arm and you can see he's in, you know, he's clearly in pain. It is a great, great Neil Adams cover. But I know that the series quickly went downhill for at least an issue because uh, my, the next issue in my collection is uh, is issue number five. Um, not long ago, someone, I wish I could give credit where credit's due and I can't remember who it was, but somebody sent me some comics and in the, the bunch of comics was, uh, was a $6 million man number five, which I already had. So I gave my extra copy to Michael Bailey with the intention that he and I were both going to read it 
and we were going to do a back to the bins about it. Right. And we both read it and we were both like, oh, dude, this was horrible. And it was so horrible that it would have made a really fun and very fun episode. And, and we just, for some reason, it fell to the back burner and we just never got it finished. But it was it was a really, really bad story. It was uh, it was so far removed from anything they would have done on the TV series. It, it had this weird, like, other dimensional Doctor Strange pseudo thing. It was really bizarre and just very odd. But what was cool about it, I, I'm not sure who the cover artist was, but the cover to it was great. It's got Steve Austin... And he's he's literally holding a motorcycle with one with his bionic arm, and he's smashing a guy off of another motorcycle with the motorcycle. So he's like picking up a motorcycle and swatting someone with the motorcycle to yeah. knock them off their motorcycle. It's it's a great picture. Like Jesus, that would hurt. <laughs> so he's clobbering a guy with a motorcycle. It's great. I brought them up on uh, Google Images. Some of the covers are fantastic. Yeah. yeah the one really of are. the Gerda is great. I mean, I don't know how that would work if he's only got one bionic arm, but it's still a great cover. Oh, there you go. That's the first issue. Yeah, I know. You see, that's the thing. And they, I don't know that they did that sort of thing in the show very often. No, they didn't really. But I know that there were there were episodes where he would brace his human arm against like a door frame. Mm. And then he would pull the door open with his, you know, like a locked door, yeah. pull it open with his bionic arm. And I, again, without some sort of reinforcement to at least his spine, but you would actually, in a case like that, you would think it'd have to be his entire skeleton. That wouldn't really work because his human arm would just give, wouldn't it? Yeah, his human arm wouldn't be able to sustain. I mean, the couple of ones I've seen, he does it and then kicks something with his legs. But it's mm-hmm. the same principle. He wouldn't be able to... The physics of it don't hold up to much scrutiny. You know, looking at that cover again, it just occurs to me, it looks like it may be painted, like maybe like watercolor painted or something. It's a beautiful Joe Staten cover. It actually reminds me a, a whole lot of some of the uh, Terminator covers that Now Comics put out when they were when they had the Terminator franchise for a brief time there in the what was that the late eighties early nineties. Yeah, they a had lot, some covers that looked like that. A lot of these look painted, and they, this, the covers are really good. Uh, I'm not I'm not saying the interior is any good. But that was kind of that was kind of the problem. I guess you would say with with a lot of Charlton comics is they did do spectacular covers and they had some great artists on staff, but typically it's when you would get in you would you'd get into the book and find that you know the the story you know particularly the story of of an issue would be you know subpar at best. And a lot of times even the art would still hold up and the art would be really good. But it was just it, a lot of times for them, it was the stories that where, the, it, you know, they just weren't able to, to be on a par of like uh, DC or Marvel at the time. Just knocking them out. But it's interesting that uh, that somebody like Charlton got that franchise and not Marvel. I, I'd be very curious to know what Marvel could do with that franchise. Yeah, because the art Planet of the Apes and Logan's run around the same time. Right. So it, it doesn't strike me as beyond the realms of possibility Marvel could have done something interesting with this. 
And I wonder if had they gotten a hold of that, it would Steve Austin have lived in the same world, you know, with Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four, or would they have kept it as a separate? I, I guess they probably would have kept it separate because they did have um, the Man from Atlantis which didn't last very long, but they did have that franchise. And I don't remember Man from Atlantis ever crossing over with anything in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, having him meet Submariner, you would have thought, would have been an obvious Right, thing. yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Well, it's something like that. They were probably under some sort of dictate not you know, to, to have them function in the same, the same universe, which you know, with something like that might have actually saved that series. Yeah. Although then you're into the whole issues thing that they have trouble with the Master of Kung Fu comics now. That they can't reprint them because they've got characters in that they don't own. Oh, yeah, that's oh, yeah. true. That's true. Yeah. He's not colonel in the pilot either. Now, you, you were in the US service, so you probably know this better than me. Why, why would he not be a colonel? What was he in this? I forget. It's a point of saying he's a civilian member of NASA. Now, in the okay, series, okay, yeah, yeah. he's very definitely a colonel. And in the novel, he's definitely a veteran of something. I can't remember if it was Vietnam or not. But they seem to go out of the way in this to point out that he's not military. Well, there were, uh, off the top of my head, I'm struggling to remember which ones they were. But there were members of the astronaut corps during that, you know, during, like, say, uh, um, Gemini and Apollo that weren't active military that were, you know, that they were actually, they were part of the astronaut corps, but they weren't, you know, they hadn't come from one of the branches of the search. Off the top of my head, I cannot think of a single one, but I know that there were some of them. So I guess maybe they were owing it back to that. But yeah, I like it much better with him actually being, uh, you know, he had come up through some sort of rank. Now, eventually, when they made him a colonel, was was he an Air Force colonel? Yeah, they established that he's an Air Force okay, colonel okay, in, the, yeah. in the, the series that followed. I just found it really odd that they went out of the way to say he's not a military colonel. And the only thing I could come up with, again, contextually, was they didn't want to get into the whole was he in Vietnam thing, which may have been something the networks wouldn't didn't want to touch at that time. It could be, yeah, it could be that because, you know, they, they were still, there was still that stigma you know, with, with the military and all that. Plus, I, I guess it could be, although it seems like kind of a long way to go about it, that they could, you know, they could have wanted to go for a thing where it had to be Austin's choice to go work for um, Darren McGavin. Right. Whereas if he was just, you know, if, if he was a, 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 a serviceman, then I guess theoretically anyway, he could just be ordered to go report to, you know, this division and, and be their new, I don't know. I, right. that you raise an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about. I just thought it was in comparison to the series where they establish he is a Colonel. He does have some military experience. I just thought it, why for the pilot did they try and just completely ignore that? I just, and I wondered what, if there was a reason for that. Yeah, it's it's odd. I should have caught that too because I did catch the part toward the uh, toward the end. You know, when when McGavin was trying to recruit him, and he said something about you know I'm I'm a civilian or whatever. And at the time, it even did occur to me. I was like, no, wait a minute, no, he wasn't a civilian. He was he was. I couldn't remember what his rank was. But yeah, you're right. I that's that's an interesting point that uh, I, I'd like to know what the explanation for that was. 
because in the, one of the early episodes of the first season, he does go to a, a, a town where he knows somebody, and their son was in Vietnam and died over there. So it could just be the change in production regime that Harve Bennett, who produced the first season, wasn't actually did want to raise this issue. He was about promoting, look, these boys went over and fought for this country. Let's raise the issue. Whereas maybe the production team for the pilot were very, like you say, it was still a hot button topic in the, in the States at the time. They just didn't want to go there. Right. It's obviously a science fiction TV show. Well, you know, you, you've got what? You've got two years between this pilot and the series. Mm. You know, more, you know, get, you know, given just vague dates of 73 and 75. Yeah. So you've got somewhere, you know, between probably like a year and a half to two years. So I would imagine that in that time, um, you know, I don't know about social attitudes, but maybe studio attitudes would have changed to a point where they, you know, maybe they shied away from it in 73, as you say, because they didn't want that association or you know, that, that negative association with things military because of, you know, the the whole Vietnam thing, whereas by seventy five, you know, maybe they weren't as gun shy about it. I, I guess that theory is as good as any. I, it actually uh, it sounds very plausible now that you say that. Works better as a military man. Steve Austin works better for that character that he does have military experience. I just think it, if you're sending somebody out on a mission on their own with no backup and no way to call for help if they get in trouble. The character needs to have some prior experience of dealing with this kind of situation. Right, right. Yeah, more than just, you know, I mean, yeah, if he was actually a civilian um, in whatever capacity, you know, and he came up through some sort of civilian operation and became a, a, a test pilot and then became an astronaut, that only works so far. That only works as far as getting him in, into the spaceship. Yeah. You know, to have the accident, that doesn't really work as far as he's our man for now going out and being a bionic uh, James Bond. Yeah, you're right. Because he would have to have at least some sort of... But then again, you know, in this pilot, you know, Steve is very adamant of the fact he doesn't want to kill people. Yeah. Which seems like kind of an odd... Well, I don't know. I mean, then then you're getting a little bit into... Uh... His psychology. I, I guess maybe he doesn't want to kill people because he already has. Whereas I actually got more of the feeling he didn't want to kill people because he never had killed anybody. Well, in the series, there is a, a moment in. By and large, he does go through the series. He doesn't use a gun and he doesn't kill people. But there is a moment in one of the early episodes where he quite clearly does kill somebody. I don't remember which show it was, but he does something. He makes. A, he tosses a truck over as it's driving and it blows up. And there's no way the people could have got out of it. And it could just be that Captain America thing. He's quite prepared to kill when he's in war. But right. he doesn't want to kill anyone if he's not in a war. Right. It could just be something as simple as that. I think... I, I would imagine, reading between the lines, I would imagine it was more of... They, they wanted to... They wanted to have their cake and eat it too. You know, They wanted yep. to do a realistic... Um, you know, approach to a to a science fiction concept but at the same rate they didn't want to get into a realm where it couldn't be a, a family show you know to where the kids could watch it too so if he was out there you know and it, it became something like a like a war picture or something then they might have been afraid you know that that then the the parents would usher the kids out of the room or that they wouldn't tune into the show because it was too violent or something. You know, yeah. if he was out there wasting the bad guys. As I've, as I've been watching through it, it's never got as ridiculous with that as, say, the A-Team. 
Right. Steve isn't James Bond in his dealings with the OSI. He doesn't have a license to kill. And his, his missions are, by and large, stop this man, bring this man in. They're not, right, go out and just execute this guy because we've had enough of him. So his mission parameters, as the series will go on, don't allow for the killing of somebody. Which is another way they could have been playing it for a family audience. Now, it'd be interesting. I, they may have addressed this, actually, in the series. I don't remember. But it would have been interesting had there been another bionic operative out there who was on that level, though. Yeah. Who was actually the bionic assassin. Yeah, a Wetworks bionic man. Right. Would be fantastic. Did they ever do that? Was that who the $7 million man was? No, the $7 million man was um, a race car driver. <laughs> and, um, psychologically... He couldn't handle the power, absolute power and all of that stuff, as we learned from James T. Kirk, corrupts absolutely. And he couldn't handle it. He wasn't Steve. He didn't have that humanist temperament that Steve has. So he was a cop too. Yes, essentially. And hmm. he, he became to the point where he used his powers for evil. And what they did at the end of the episode was they just dialed his bionics back. So they'd saved his life by giving him bionics, but he couldn't use them superpoweredly, if that makes any sense. Right. <laughs> fast or use it for super strength anymore he's just a normal guy who i would imagine had a hell of a time trying to fly on planes right <laughs> now that he's all bionic i wonder oh. was i wonder if that was ever addressed because i've actually thought of that you know and i, I suppose that's more of a of a modern thing you know with with uh, you know our, our new and you know well understood paranoia about such things with with modern air travel but even back then i mean they still had metal detectors and yeah. stuff i guess he would have just had to have some sort of medical yeah you know medical got... waiver card saying you know yeah this guy you know he's got you know prosthetic limbs or whatever you know i, I know that those exist in the real world but you know today where we actually have these super detailed x-ray machines and stuff like that you would think that that would raise some serious red flags if he walked through and somebody somewhere is actually being able to look inside him and see whoa yeah, what's going you know, on this is isn't this isn't just you know mr hook arm this is somebody that's i mean he's <laughs> practically a robot you know well that does lead us nicely into the comics yeah but what a professional segue <laughs> you know, but anyway i, 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 I meant i meant for that to happen I'm sure that you did. I have every, every respect for your ability to do that. The, <laughs> the opening pages of the first issue of the comic is this, uh, this bionic operative Hull. And he does seem very much like what you're suggesting. He does seem very much like he's an undercover OSI agent who does go in like Bond with a license to kill. I mean, we've not been given his full backstory yet four issues into this. But that certainly seems to be the implication that he was created for this kind of wet works operation where we don't have anyone else we can send in. It's a last ditch effort. Kill him if you need to. Yeah, I like this guy. I don't know what the deal is going to turn out to be with him, but I, I suspect you're right that he, he's going to turn out to be something like the, uh, the $7 million man of this series because he doesn't seem like he's quite as sophisticated as steve is as far as his his look and his bionics and everything but also he he seems like he's uh probably not all there either he's definitely has no uh problem with killing and i mean the the beginning of this mm. it actually surprises me that i liked this first issue as much as i did because it starts out 
and it comes right out of the gate swinging and it's very very violent yeah i'm completely simpatico with you the, the initial first couple of pages of this i thought i'm not gonna like this because for me there should there are adult themes that you can deal with within the concept of the bionic man and i have no problem with that at all and you can update it but there's there's more to darkening something than just having somebody with a sword cut somebody's head off that's right. not darkening that's just violent for the sake of being violent now, like you say, we haven't received any further background information on this character as of yet, other than a, a brief conversation between the woman Margaret and Oscar Goldman. So we don't know what his deal is. Um, but I, I was a bit put off by the first couple of pages. Uh, it redeemed itself from that point onwards, thankfully. Yeah, I, that's exactly how I felt. Was uh, yeah, my my first read. I was. I mean. I cannot tell you how excited I was to pick this up because when I first heard this, and I actually just heard about it in passing because I, I have been so lax lately as far as keeping up with solicits or no, I, I don't even know what's going on in comics these days. I, I've been so, and you know, it, it all comes from the goings on with, with Marvel and DC, but I've been so put off by modern comics in, in the past couple of years that I just stopped caring for the, for the most part. But somewhere in passing, I heard somebody talking that there was going to be a new $6 million man series. So I was like, well, you know, I got to check that out. It's probably going to suck, but I'll check it out just to see, you know. So I told the, you know, my LCS, hey, you know, I, this thing's coming out. I, I want at least the first issue to check it out. I was really excited. I love the cover and opened it up. And right, right out of the gate, you've got this bionic guy with a, with a giant sword comes in and starts wasting people and it's super graphic. I mean, it's really nasty the way this guy is killing these people. And I thought right out of the gate, nah, I'm not going to like this. But as soon as you get past that and it gets right to the part where the, uh, what is this guy? I don't know what his rank is general or whatever mm. is bitching about where's Austin. He's holding us up with this experimental plane he's supposed to be. And I was like, dude, that is right out of the pilot. Yeah, it's almost a replay of the opening scenes of the pilot episode. It's also instead of Rudy. Mm -hmm. But the character beats are pretty much exactly the same. Yeah, I'm exactly the same as you. The first five pages of... And then I didn't like the swearing. Um, there is one use of the F word in a couple of issues time that I thought was a bit gratuitous. Now, I, I can swear like a sailor, as you know. <laughs> but I did. I didn't feel there was any need for it in this series. I. It was kind of one of those things where. Yeah, I. I didn't feel like it was needed or necessary. It, it was one of those things where, again, I felt like it was being thrown out there to show you, okay, this is an adult book. You know, yeah. we're not going to pull punches. We're going to be very serious in our approach to this. Look, we're we're even dropping the f bomb. The F-bomb to me was, that was that was a little bit too far. I got the adult thing with the violence that you gave me. And Oscar says uh, shit right at the beginning of the book. That was plenty. At, at that point, I got everything I needed to tell me, okay, this is going to be more of a PG-13, possibly even R-rated $6 million man. Which, you know what? I'm perfectly fine with that. Because I think that's one of the things that lends in to the current day reputation of the Six Million Dollar Man TV show is that it tried to play both sides. You know, it tried to be a serious science fiction show, but also appeal to kids because they knew that's where the money was. Mm. So with this, 
you've kind of taken the kitty concept off, right off the table. This is really not a book that I would feel comfortable handing a child, you know, handing to a child. Mm. So I like that. It feels like this is going to be much more an adult, you know, Steve Austin book. I, I like that. But yeah, I, I am with you with the f bomb thing. I think that's just, unfortunately, that's one of those Kevin Smith isms we're probably just going to have to put up with. But thankfully, yeah. I felt like he dialed his Kevin Smithness way back in this. Yeah, that's another thing that I'm in complete agreement with you about. That I was just as excited as you when I heard this was coming up, and then I saw Kevin Smith's name attached to it, and I'm I'm kind of lukewarm on Kevin Smith. I think his first three films were brilliant particularly chasing Amy. After that, I, I think he's on a bit of a downward slide. I've got a daughter. I know she's great. I don't feel the need to make a two-hour movie about how great it is to be father to a daughter. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he's just kind of... Mm. And then he makes Jay and Silent Bob the stars of their own film. The subsidiary characters, Kevin. Just because you're getting a bigger paycheck doesn't mean you should promote these characters. And he's kind of been up and down on an awful lot of it. And the, the new Bruce Willis thing he did was god-awful. And, yeah, and so I, when I saw him, it was, right, well, which Kevin Smith is coming to the table here? Right, right. The Kevin Smith of the poop and the fart jokes, which are funny in the place. Everybody loves a good fart gag. Or is he going to dial that in and respect the material but update it in the ways that it needs updating? And thankfully, that seems to be the Kevin Smith that we've got and that's not to take away from Phil Hester, because we don't know how much Phil Hester's brought to this table either. A lot of it could be him adapting Kevin Smith's scripts. Kevin Smith isn't involved in this on a monthly basis. He can't be. It's shipping on time, for one thing. <laughs> he can't be involved in it on a regular basis. See, you and I, it's, it's almost scary what you just said because you and I are in such complete agreement. And it's f- so just gratifying to me that you said Chasing Amy because that's at, at that point after Chasing Amy is where Kevin Smith and I kind of parted company because it was like after that, he, he got too full of himself, I think. He, he, he got to a point where he just thought that you know his shit didn't stink and then he had that thing where he was on whatever late night show it was and, and went to one of the comic cons and started ripping on his people, the yeah. people that put him where he is. <laughs> and that, so yeah, that was the point where I was like, okay, I, I think we're done. But you know what? You know, I, I haven't really cared for him at all since that point. But this book... I'm in, I'm digging it so much so far, and it is such an obvious love letter to the original Six Million Dollar Man series that that this could be the moment where where you know we shake hands and, and everything's cool, dude. You know, all's forgiven, because this is the Kevin Smith of old. This is like Mallrats, Kevin yeah. Smith. Yeah, the dialogue between Oscar and the General is really good. Mm-hmm. Real, you can you play. I mean. I'm probably revealing a bit too much here, but I do read my comics aloud sometimes <laughs> <laughs> because you get a better feel for the dialogue. And if the dialogue works read aloud, it's good dialogue. And oh, so good. These opening pages. I mean, going past the general and the Oscar stuff, the, the conversation between Steve and Jamie Summers. And can we just have a geek out that Jamie Summers is in it from the beginning? I uh, had both a geek out and a Big red flag went up because I got to be honest, 
So far, now, has her name actually been given as Summers? Because it's no. obviously Jamie. They gave that right in the first issue, but is it Jamie Summers? It's not stated that she's Jamie Summers, but given that they have announced a Bionic Woman comic coming soon. Yeah, which see, I- that's exactly... When I saw Jamie, that his girlfriend's name was Jamie, that red flag went up and I thought, please, dear God, don't let her turn out to be the Bionic Woman. And now you're saying there's one coming along. That makes me really nervous, I have to be honest. Well, and it's too soon as well. They should have let this stand alone 12, 24 months before they even thought about doing anything like that. They've, they've no guarantee this is going to be successful. Right. They start flooding the market with spin-offs. But I'll tell you, though, having said that, I, I still want to have faith because you know one of the things that almost inevitably comes up when you mention the $6 million man to the man in the street, one of two things is going to come up either Bigfoot or Mm -hmm. the bionic dog. And they put the bionic dog in here and totally sold it. I mean, it worked so well because they used the bionic dog to convince Steve that the bionics program works and that they could fix him. And I love that was a great angle to do it rather than he becomes the six million dollar man and in about a year and a half suddenly they have to give him his equivalent of Ace the Bat Hound. Yes. So this works so much better in this that they actually got that nod to the original series in there without it coming off as incredibly cheesy as it by all rights should have been. It makes sense that they have tested this on animals. Whatever exactly. Yeah. It makes sense within this story that that's what they've done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're right. That beginning of issue four, that bit with Max the Bionic Dog, like you, eye rolling. And then I read it and it was like, you know, this works. This is really good. Mm-hmm. That, that, the entire conversation between Steve and Jamie, you've had conversations like this with your wife. I've, I've had conversations like this with mine where it's good natured ripping the piss out of each other. And yeah. it's. It, very well written it is and and you know as as well as them realistically you know speaking to you know there's also that little bit of we're by ourselves there can be a little bit of ass grabbery going on here too and that dialogue is completely realistic as well and i I like that i mean he is you know say what you want about kevin smith and lord knows i've ripped on him plenty but (laughs) when he's on he's on and and to me the quintessential on kevin smith is when his dialogue is really clicking and his, you know cuz that's what he's a master of when he's you know truly at his best and this is just right up there with some of the best stuff he's ever done as far as uh, as far as dialogue and as you say that's not to take anything away from uh from phil hester who you know, I, I would love to know what the actual collaboration is. You know, mm-hmm. in this because it's all it says is based on a Kevin, uh, based on a story by Kevin Smith, and then that he and Phil Hester worked together on the script. Smith wrote a script for a proposed six million dollar man movie in the I want to say mid to late nineties that was never produced, and his the criticism of the script was, and I quote this directly from Kevin Smith himself. It was too comic booky. And he thought that they meant that to be an insult to him. And he took it as a compliment, as he should, because this is fantastic. So I don't know what state that script was in. I don't know whether it was a full script or whether it was like a partial first draft or whatever. 
because it's never surfaced online like a Superman Libs one has. But the, the proof of this is obviously going to be when Phil Hester takes the book on his own. When he's adapted the script, what's it going to be like when they, they run with it? Well, you know, whoever sent that memo out, you know, uh, about Smith's uh, proposed movie of this, somebody needs to walk up to them and knock them on the forehead like, you know, like Biff Tannen to McFly and go, hello, <laughs> Captain America, uh, Thor, Iron Man, uh, Avengers, hello, comic bookie these days in a movie, not a bad thing. Mm. See, my hope is that the success of this will lead to this being made into a film. I, I had that initial thought as well, because, you know, my, my first, especially getting to the end of this, you know, as you and I discussed just before we got started, you know, you and I both are currently up to issue four. Issue four to me feels like where this is probably going to end when it gets collected as a trade, because it yeah. feels like it was the, the end of, a, of the first arc is, is pretty much the feeling I got. And uh, yeah, so far with the end of that first arc, I'm like, man, I am totally into this if it's a movie. But then with with the state of things these days and, and the way things go in Hollywood and particularly the way things go in your standard comics to movie adaptation, I don't know, man. I, as much as I would love to see this be a movie, I, I would say that with the caveat of I want this to be a movie yeah. not somebody to just purchase the name and that's it and then they run in some completely ridiculous you know other direction and you've got you know keanu reeves is the bionic man that would suck yeah this doesn't need changing film this exactly a decent exactly. actor as steve austin the last thing i read about this was leonardo dicaprio oh, was instituted by brian singer no and no I'm just like oh no. god have we learned nothing from superman returns and it's like no it this doesn't need a name actor you cast sunday you can sell this role the name is the product the six million dollar man or six billion dollar man or just the bionic man whatever the hell you want to end up calling it that sells your movie save the money for the special effects hire a young up-and-coming actor who can do this properly and let it go. Just say, here's the comic, film that. And you're right, they won't do that because they're all idiots. See, by my own admission, I am complete crap at the cast this comic book game. I've always been lousy at that. And people ask me, continue to ask me to this day, you know, well, well, you know, you didn't like movie X, so who would you have cast as Batman or whoever? I'm crap at that game. I, I really am. And a lot of it comes from the fact I don't really watch TV or, you know, quote unquote, modern movies these days. I just don't. You know, I'm just not into what's what's hip and now. I never really have been. So I don't know. And, you know, looking through this book, there are obvious nods to Lee Majors. But none of the characters in here are just photo referencing Lee Majors or the guy that played Oscar or or um, Lindsay Wagner as Jamie. You know, th they all kind of vaguely resemble them, but none of them look exactly like them. So yeah. looking at um, Steve Austin in this, there were several times when I looked at the the different pictures of him and thinking. I could see so and so as this as this character or that character, but you know, I, I couldn't really nail it down for you. Um, Rudy looks like Wilfred Brimley. Yeah, 
Yeah, he does. You know, if, if he was, uh, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years younger, somebody like, um, oh God, now his name just completely went right out of my head. Oh, I can't, I'll have to come back to it. I, I just completely went out of my head. Did you ever see a movie called Summer School? It was a, it was a comedy. I vaguely recall the title. The guy that played the teacher, he's on TV now, but I can't remember what show he's on. I, I want to say it's one of those investigative shows, you know, like criminal shows, but I, ah, uh, it's going to drive me nuts. If well, I see, think of it, I'll throw it, I'll throw it back out there. But at the moment, I, Mark Harmon, that's his, it just, oh, right, yeah. Mark Harmon. I could totally see a younger Mark Harmon in this role. Yeah. Uh, 10 years ago, I'd have gone for Ben Browder from Farscape, but he played Lee Majors in some crappy Charlie's Angels TV movie about the behind the scenes of Charlie's Angels. The, the blonde girl, Trisha Helfer from Battlestar Galactica played Farrah Fawcett. And they did a, a reenactment of them filming the $6 million man, the Bigfoot scene, obviously. And he was really good because he wasn't sending it up. But because he's done that now, I, I think I'd kind of move away from it. The only person I can think of at the minute who I could see as Steve Austin would be Jensen Eccles from supernatural he's just the right age and i think he could probably pull it off if you were going for a name and also you do need to go for somebody who's in the 30s i'm sorry hollywood you cannot cast a 21 year old in this role no no that it's it's exactly what i was thinking too is that you you couldn't go you know, this is definitely something, if, if you truly want to sell it and make it believable and make it as realistic as possible within, you know, the framework, you know, the framework of what it is. Yeah, you couldn't do that. You couldn't make this the, the Dawson Creekization of the $6 million man. It just doesn't work because you have to believe that this is a guy that has worked his way up the ladder and has been a test pilot for a, a long enough time that he's the top guy in that field. You know, you don't get to be that at 21 years old. You know, this is, you know, usually those guys are guys that are within a couple of years of retirement yeah, because they've had to work their way toward that. He's, he's quitting after this. Right. The end of the road for him. This is his final mission. After this, he's hanging up his flight suit. So you need somebody, what, 34 to 36? Well, within the uh, within the framework of the military, you know, assuming that he had joined the military at say what age seventeen or eighteen, probably eighteen. So you're looking at a guy if if this is his last mission and after this he's hanging it up, he's retiring. Then you're looking at a guy that's going to retire at about thirty eight years old. So you're looking at a guy that's you know yeah late thirties, you know mi middle to late thirties. Well, give him benefit of the doubt and say he's such a hot shot that he's going early. Right. So if we cast somebody thirty four. That I'd buy 34, I wouldn't buy much younger than that. Right. And it just seems to be, they wouldn't do that. They would cast somebody who's 23. Right, yeah, they wouldn't want to do that for so many reasons, because for one, you know, you're, you're instantly, you're out of that demographic of what's considered hip and hot, but also, you know, Hollywood is always going to look at, well, how, how much mileage can we get out of this as a franchise? You know, they're, they're always looking beyond just the initial movie. So if you cast, you know, cast somebody who is, uh, you know, in their, their thirties to begin with, then Hollywood's looking at it as well, you know, we can only get so much mileage out of this because he's going to get old, you know, within, within three movies, he's going to be in his mid forties or, or older, you know, he's going to be, you know, older, doughier, you know, and we're not going to get as much mileage. So 
yeah, they probably wouldn't. They would probably want to go for some stupid Top Gun type of feel with a bunch of 20-year-olds. So, yeah, I don't... I just don't know. Yeah. It's, which is a shame, really. What did you think of him not being an astronaut? You know, it, it, it bothered me, but only on that level of I wanted it for selfish reasons. But for the realism of the story, it had to be this way because it's it's one of those things where I, I think the last thing I can think of that successfully got away with um, a, a, a fake um, moon program for lack of a better way to put it, yeah. was, would be like Superman 2. Because Superman 2 was out in, what, 80, 80 or 81. And by that point, there, you know, there still hadn't been enough time yet to where people probably didn't realize, oh, gee, we stopped going to the moon like six years ago. You know, mm-hmm. At this point, we haven't had a man on the moon in, what, 30 years? Or almost 30 years. No, actually, it's creeping up on 40 years. So, yeah, at this point, without him actually being a moonwalker, I'm glad that they kind of jettisoned the whole astronaut thing because I think that that was a, a, an, an integral part of who Steve Austin was. And, you know, I don't want to diss our space program, but, you know, to a lot of people, and, and you know, I've, I've actually been a witness to this firsthand, if you're an astronaut but you're not one of the astronauts, if you know what I mean, then it's kind of like saying, yeah, you're a bus driver, you know, to a lot of people because, you know, you're, you're not one of the guys, you know, you didn't go to the moon, you know, or you weren't part of this program that led to that. So an astronaut, sadly, these days, and we still have them. I mean, there's still people that are astronauts, you know, that have done, you know, amazing things. They've been on the space shuttle and all that, but that's just doesn't have the same wow factor to those original guys that actually went there. So, which is very sad, isn't it? It is very sad. It it is. And so in that aspect, I I actually was okay with them kind of bringing him back to, you know, he, he's a test pilot. He didn't really need the, uh, the association with, with the space thing as well, because then that point that, that would have been stretching credibility because that would have been going so far beyond anything that, you know, is actually real. Now they could have made him part of some sort of covert um, space program, or something that that could have been interesting. But again, then you're risking that. Eh, I don't know if I buy this right out of the gate, where you had to be sold on this the fantasy thing on top of a fantasy thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. See, I, I'm exactly the same as you. I wanted him to be an astronaut because I I still remember that we used to look up to people like that. You know, people who'd really accomplished something magnificent instead of just vacuous tarts now, which is who we, we seem to aspire to want to be nowadays. Right. But within the content, confines of this story, it is a change that makes sense. But goddamn, I want astronauts to be cool again. I do too. I do too. I mean, it must have been amazing, you know, to, to live in that era where... You know, I mean, because these days, like you say, uh, so many of the people that we look up to are just despicable human beings, you know, and, and looking up to, to people at a, you know, back when astronauts were the cool thing to be, you know, I mean, little kids yeah. were looking at these guys going, that's what I want to be. That's neat. You know, that's, that's really amazing. And the pendulum has swung so far back the other way that now to have a fascination with, 
you know, that era and the, the space program and going to the, you know, you're, you're relegated to the geek realm. How the hell did that happen? Oh, you know? it's, it's shocking. It's like we, we, we used to admire people who accomplished something wonderful, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. what walking on the moon was. It's fantastic that we accomplished that. And now it's, it's what? We don't even buy that people did it? That's just shocking. But anyway, that's, you know, that's a different show. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. I, I, I just want my children to look up to people who've accomplished something real. Basically, is where it comes from. So, yeah, I agree with you. For entirely selfish reasons, I wanted him to still be an astronaut. But I buy, okay, I accept that he isn't. It's a shame, but you're right, unfortunately. Um, Well, go on, sorry. I I could buy them, though, once, you know, they're, they're deep enough into this series where they're looking for new directions and new things to go with. I could actually buy them wanting to use Steve... Uh, to forge a new uh, space space initiative, you know, to go out into space, whether it's the moon or Mars or whatever, that could actually be an interesting direction in the future of the series. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool, a Mars mission. Because it would allow them to introduce the whole, these bionics don't work in, in sub-zero temperatures thing. Right. So it'd be a way to bring that in. I do like, as well, Steve seems to be good friends with Oscar Goldman, but he doesn't know who he works for. He knows he's an OSI employee, but he doesn't know what he does. I think that's an interesting, uh, an interesting take on this. Mm. He does tell him. Uh, is it in issue three or four where he's trying to convince him to go with this? He does explain to him what OSI does and how they go about doing it. But Steve's good friends with a guy who doesn't even tell him what he does for a living, which I thought was quite interesting. Sorry, I just got uh, I got sucked into just flipping through and looking at the artwork. Um, I've, I've moved on to issue three here. Which uh, which covers do you have on this? I have the Alex Ross ones only because I, I order my comics through the internet and they come every month. And I normally don't even bother specifying which cover. But I have to say that the, the issue number two, the Alex Ross cover, is pretty damn good. It like, is very reminiscent of the opening credits to the TV show. It looks just enough like Lee Majors for you to be able to go, yes, that's the Bionic Man, but not enough to get sued. Now, what did you think of how they addressed, I forget which issue it is, it's either three or four, where they dealt with the actual name, Six Million Dollar Man, because they actually, I thought he cleverly tied it in because yes. you know this series is now called the the bionic man as opposed to the six million dollar man but there was a nod yeah to that name six million dollar man in one of the latest issues what did you think of that issue number three um oscar's explaining to him how much it's going to cost and he says six million dollars a day I, I thought that was great i thought it was a lovely little nod to the series title which was not the title of the KD novel, so I don't mind that. I thought it was lovely. And if you remember in the pilot film, um, Oliver Spencer says $6 million initially. Initially, yes. And then, however, meant X amount of dollars subsequently. So his final price tag wasn't $6 million. So I'm not married to that title, but I do like that he, he did give it a nod in a way that wasn't cheesy or winking at the audience. 
even in that initial pilot, I noticed that, uh, at the end of the episode, he's not the same bionic man that he starts out as because after he's injured rescuing that child and when he accepts the mission, then Darren McGavin orders uh, Wells to upgrade him. Yeah. Which I thought was very cool. Yeah, and so that's something that's never in the series. We do see him being repaired from time to time, but there's never any indication that he does get upgraded. Look what we've developed, a new eye that can do this. That would have been great to see in the series that he was constantly developing. The series, throughout the first season, they show them testing him. It isn't all done in the pilot, because it's in an early first season episode, they clock his top speed at 66 miles an hour, which I like. I like that they gave him limitations as well as what he can do, because I think that you do define your stories. It gives it an element of realism if you say what they can't do as well as what they can do. But the, the series that followed the first season, that was never even touched on again. And it is something I wouldn't mind them seeing in the comic, that technology is constantly advancing. We can upgrade you. We can make you even better. We can make you even faster, even stronger. But there has to come a point somewhere where the human body, or what's left of him, won't sustain those speeds. And I do hope that they, 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 they address that as well. The one thing I'd like to see them do is uh, is borrow some plot elements from the character Cyborg from uh, DC, from the Teen Titans. Because I, I used to like that character a lot. And there was uh, some great storylines with that character where, you know, right from the get-go, he always feared that he had lost too much of himself to be considered human. But then over the course of his adventures, he just kept getting more damaged and more damaged and constantly being repaired and upgraded and changed to a point where it, it actually began to look like there was very little of the man left. And I'd love to see that explored in this series as, as it goes on. As you say, as they continue to upgrade him and they can just get more and more sophisticated, do, will he start to feel that he's continually you know continually losing ground with the human in him yeah. to, to where he's becoming more machine and more machine and, and the and the man's getting lost in in the in the hardware that I, I that's probably a natural direction to go anyway but i really hope that they do yeah. go that way yeah i agree especially seeing as like you said in issue four after they do the whole brilliant thing with max the bionic dog and explaining that this dog is bionic they do cut off his other arm and they do and they give a plausible explanation for that due to the weight displacement ratio of the bionics we have to balance him out so it is logical that he loses the other arm but they cut out his other eye as well yeah that i'm glad you brought that up because that was going to that's where i was actually gonna go now was uh was there anything in this series that that's bothered you or that you feel has been a misstep so far and for me personally, that's the one place they've gone where I felt like they went too far is I, there's probably a certain amount of logic to it. But at the same rate, it was an element of uh, he seemed like he was OK with it. it you know, uh, he was more concerned about the arm than he was about the eye. Well, he doesn't even mention the eye, does he? Um, I want to say he you know what? No, I think you're right. Because I, I think that was one of the things that bugged me was that he didn't seem to be aware that they had taken the eye. He was focused on the arm. 
Yeah. But I don't know that the eye ever even came up in the, which, you know, that, I guess that could work that if it ever comes up, they could say, well, you know, we, we took the eye too and you didn't even notice. Yeah. And then that's interesting. You say that could be something that I hadn't considered that because he does say they took my arm, my good arm, and they had to compensate for the, the weight ratio. But no, they don't mention the eye. And you're right, they could be going down the, the, the lane that we replaced your other eye, and you don't know. That's a very interesting idea. Um, I did love that this, there's an entire two or three pages in this that is a direct lift of the opening credits. Colonel Steve Austin, a man barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. And they do the whole we have the technology better than he was before. They do all of that. And it's, it's really well done. And then it's followed by three pages of explanation of, like you say, pseudo comic book science, but plausible pseudo comic book science within the framework that they're telling their story. And it's really good. I really, and I think issue four was my favorite issue so far. Yeah, yeah, me too, because this is kind of the point I've been, you know, as great as the other issues are, this is the point I wanted to see right from the beginning is that opening, basically the opening sequence of the show of him running in the red tracksuit, which yep. is exactly what we get. I wish these pages were numbered. Yeah. But, you know, there's there's that great splash page that I'm telling you, dude, I would love to see a poster of this. It's the page that shows him running at us, the reader, and it's got 30 miles per hour in the top and then 45 near the bottom. That's great. That's exactly what I wanted to see right from here. I'm sorry? He's even wearing Adidas trainers. It's awesome. Yep. It's wonderful little nod to the show. They don't clock his top speed in this. Did you notice that? You know what? No, I didn't. He gets to 45 miles an hour, and they say we were expecting 30 tops. But they don't clock a top speed. So it is going to be interesting to see if they they do define a top speed from like the TV show did, or or like the books did, where he he couldn't run much faster than a normal Olympic athlete, but he could do it forever. Because they mentioned that as well, that as far as his body's concerned, he's just walking. So the implication there, the, the bionics could keep him running, if not forever, certainly for a very long time. It does beg the question, does he now need to eat anywhere near as much as he used to? You wouldn't think so. No, because his cardiovascular system isn't being taxed. They actually say that. So the implication there is that he doesn't, he probably only needs one meal a day, if that. Well, one other thing I noticed was in here that I'm glad that they addressed because I've, I was, you know, there, there have been a number of of you know cybernetically enhanced characters over the years and i noticed that a lot of them are often very vague as far as this specific um not to get crude but it looks like he is still fully a man if you know what i mean and i like that we're given that i mean we're practically shown it that he's still got his you know his bits yeah so I like that because then, you know, they're, they're, you're, they don't have to play that ambiguity game. You know, they don't have to beat around the bush, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Well. You know, they, they can, you know, they, they you know, you, we know that he still uh, functions. So I like that because, as I say, you know, there have been a number of, of characters like this over the years. And it seems like that's one of those things that they always have to, 
you know, go the long way around, you know, because uh, like Cyborg from the Teen Titans, I don't know that they've ever come right out and said one way or the other. And I actually had the thought, especially while rewatching the pilot uh, TV show of this, you know, had he lost that? Because, you know, granted, this was 1970s television, so they weren't going to talk about, you know, things too graphically or, or in depth. But, you know, there's the part where, where Rudy's trying to convince Steve to have the operation. He says, you know, you'll be able to hold a woman again. You'll even be able to, if you want to, dance with her. And then that's as far as they go. So it kind of leaves it a little bit vague on, uh, you know, how much further could he go than just dancing? They never do come right out and say. They could be using dancing like John Burns next men did. Yes. <laughs> That's a great callback, and I know exactly what you're talking about. That's awesome. It's a very subtle way of winking at the the adult members of the audience, you know, still fully functional, but it'll just sell right over the kid's head. Right. And exactly. Kevin Smith, not known for his subtlety, let's be brutally honest. This but as I'm with you, it, it does here let you see that he is still fully functional, programmed in a wide variety of pleasuring techniques. <laughs> um despite the bionic legs. Um, the only problem I had with this was the art on the, the splash page in issue four, which is about halfway through the book. His legs are really chunky. He doesn't look like he has any ankles. Where is this one again? I'm sorry. He's strapped to the table. Oh, yeah. The page with the credits on. Yeah, he yeah. is. Uh, yeah, he's massive. Hmm. Now, you could argue it's the bionics, and I'll give you the pass on that, but he does make, he's going to have a hell of a time getting shoes that fit. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if in that case that might just be the art. Although, you know, the art's been fairly, uh, fairly spectacular so far through the series. But, yeah, you're right. His, uh, his, his legs don't taper to natural ankles. He almost has like, uh, God, I don't even know how you would describe that. His thighs are almost as big as his ankles. Exactly, yeah. Um, now, I suppose there could be still some swelling. I don't know. But if they're all bionic, I presume not. But, yeah, it, it is the only misstep in the artwork so far. And then when you go over the next page where he's playing with the mirror, you get the back view of him. He, he very definitely has ankles and calves. So I, I do think that was just a, an off piece of art, to be honest with you. It just struck me that your first full shot of his bionic legs there and the ankles are really thick. Now I was replaying or you're re uh, reading this scene from that splash page you were talking about right on through to the shot of him looking at his butt in the mirror. And you're right. He is, uh, they talk about the arm and he's concerned about the arm, but the eye is never mentioned. And so I'm I'm wondering if that means he's not even aware. Possibly. It would be an interesting way for him to go with that. Because like you said, that could play into the whole more machine than man angle. That he really is now, isn't he? Essentially, he's still got a human brain and a human torso. But everything else is, is bionic. I wonder oh. if uh, if they would have been able to sell it in this. Had he uh, had he lost his uh, his manly identity, let's say, <laughs> I don't. Would think they, go there. What's that? I don't think they'd want to go there. To be honest with you, they're going to want him to be 
the virile male lead. Well, I wonder if if they would have been able to successfully sell it that bionics, you know, bionics are so advanced that they could actually <laughs> replace that too. The bionic cock. Yeah, essentially, yeah. <laughs> I just want to know if it makes the no 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 sound, you know. That's that's really all I want to know. <laughs> when he gets excited. Yeah, you know, well, you know, when Beavis when he gets excited goes boing. I want to know if the bionic man goes no 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 no, you know, I, I don't know. That's just that's the twelve year old in me, I guess. Oh yeah, that's the the pawn version that I'm sure you... inevitably follow. They do, <laughs> and then and then a joke as well, don't they? Yes, I love that. I love yeah. that. Oh, I thought that was pretty good callback as well. The guy he's talking to, though, do you not think he looks like Richard Anderson? Uh, uh, flip back flip to that. To that. Page. Page. Oh, I hate that there's not page numbers in these things. The bottom panel, what's that noise? The na 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 na, like a spring or something? And it's that's Richard Anderson, isn't it? Why can I not find that page? Oh, yeah, there we go. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. And he's a bit further up as well, the second panel on the page. Yeah, that's yeah. totally uh, the original Oscar yeah. Goldman. Yeah. I don't mind that, because if they do make it as a film, one would imagine Lee Majors and Richard Anderson will make cameos. I wonder how they would sell that. Oh, they just, if just do it like that. He's just a different guy working in OSI. I could buy that. Let's see uh, Steve, Ma- uh, yeah, Steve, uh, Lee Majors as like Steve Austin's dad or something like that. Well, he's just done that in the Big Valley movie. He's played the father of the character he played in the TV show. Oh, really? So uh, I don't know whether he'd want to do that. Although I suppose a paycheck's a paycheck, isn't it? The last time I saw him, which actually wasn't long ago, there's this show that my wife watches for oh, God knows what reason. I, I've watched one or two episodes and think it's just a, a god-awful, horrible show. I don't know the name of it, but it's these white trash, just, I don't even know how you would describe the show. I can't think of what the name of it is. And he guest starred on there as the father of the just idiot uh husband character that's on that show i i can't think of the name of the show it's it's i don't know if you guys get this over there it's this show about this guy he like how oh, he found a baby or something and decided to just take it home and raise it as his daughter or something like that but his family are just these like poor as dirt just trailer trash white folk you know and it's just, i mean the show is just nothing but stereotypes and cliches of just you know how how stupid and unsophisticated you know they're they're not quite rednecks but they're they're basically are you know they're just like trailer trash people and uh lee majors was on there playing the dad and i saw him and was just like it just broke my heart because he didn't look good you know i mean he's and granted he's got to be up there and and years and everything but you know every time i you know i see somebody like that you know i i want them to look like this you know i want him to look still like steve austin you know and he you know he's he doesn't he's but it's, he's got to be what he's got to be in his 70s or better by now i would think he must be in his 70s by now lee majors um yeah i am saddened that we have to get old it really does. <laughs> uh, it really depresses me that it happens to the best of us 1939 he was born according to wikipedia wow wow my god he's only 10 years younger than my gran 
My gran was born in 1929. He's so since Batman. Yeah. Why? So he's, what, 71, 72-ish? Around the early 70s. Yeah. Wow. wow. Right. Yeah. Well, he, he doesn't look too bad on the special features on the DVD, but he has got a beard because of this role he's doing in the Big Valley movie when they recorded those. Uh, but looking at these pictures that have just come up when I've typed in his name, yeah, he's, he's looking a bit gaunt, isn't he? Yeah, he yeah. was uh, he was clean shaven in the in the thing I just saw him in. Because otherwise, I don't know that I would recognize him if he had uh, if he had facial hair. The beard kind of filled his face out a bit, which is is quite sad. Yeah, really. he he played the he played the. Well, I guess to the to the character on the show, he would be the grandfather. He played the grandfather, and then the woman for, that was the mother on um, was it the Partridge Family? Yeah, the Partridge family. She was she was his wife, the grandmother. I can't remember what her name is either, but she looked older than hell too. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's quite a shame, really. We don't want to end on a depressing note. No, no, we don't. I'm trying to figure out how to move away from this because I almost I almost wanted to talk about the reunion movies, but they were they were pretty sad and depressing too. I, I've never seen the reunion movies. I've got them on this DVD set. I do plan on watching them. I've seen a bit of the one with Sandra Bullock in. Yeah. I was put off by it, by the fact that the guy from V was also in it. And I thought he was just such a god-awful actor in V. He was only in V the series. He wasn't in the mini-series that was good. He was in the, the hour-long series that followed. I can't remember his name. He's got very puffy, feathery 80s hair, despite the fact that film was made in the 90s. <laughs> so I was by the fact that he was in it, and so I've never watched any of them. I watched at least the first one, and it threw me for a loop right out of the gate because it recreates the accident that made Steve Austin the Bionic Man, only this time it was his son, who I'm pretty sure his name was Steve Austin Jr., if I'm remembering correctly. And it recreates the accident, and of course he becomes a new Bionic Man. Well, my question was, where the hell did Steve Austin Jr. come from? And I don't know that that's ever addressed in the series. And then I remember they did uh, they, they did a couple of different ones. And I can't remember if the first reunion movie had Lindsay Wagner in it or not. I don't remember. But I know that there was one eventually. And I, I just, I, I, you know, like I said, this was years ago that I saw it. Maybe I just need to rewatch it. Maybe everything is explained. But at the time watching it, I don't remember it being explained where his son came from. So I thought that was very odd because I don't think his mother was Jamie. So yeah. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> uh, L- L- Lindsay Wagner's definitely in the last one, which is they finally get married. Yeah. Bionic yeah. ever after, which that's I thought, awful. come on, that's, you know, that's a terrible name. Now you're just playing into, you know, the, the, the negative prejudice that so many people have against the thing to begin with, you know? I'm interested in seeing them when I eventually get through the series to see if they still use the same techniques. Do they still have slow-mo running and all of that stuff? Or do I, they... th- I think so, yeah. Uh, I th- you know, because by that time, it was, it was you know, it, it, it had become a cliche. You know, so they, they were almost, almost a parody. Because yeah. there, there's a lot of moments in that where I could just, I, I could hear Lee Majors just kind of groaning his way through it. Which is a shame, because... 
for something like that, you know, you would think they'd want to come back and and play it straight and maybe try to capture some of the the original, you know, glory of the show rather than come back and just play to a stereotype. But sadly, that was the feel I got from those that I watched was that they were just they were basically giving the people what they thought they wanted, mm-hmm. which was a shame. Right. Because to a large degree, I felt like the the Hulk reunion movies were much the same way. Well, I thought they were terrible. Yeah. The Hulk reunion, because a lot of it was Kenneth Johnson wasn't involved. Right. And it's, there was no Jack McGee, and ugh, they were awful. Yeah. yeah. So, they, were, they, were playing to, they were playing to what people remembered, so they were playing to kind of a stereotype as opposed to being true to what the series actually was in, yeah. in, you know, in, its, in its finest moments, in its purest form. And that's definitely how I felt the, uh, the $6 million man uh, reunion movies were, was that rather than being faithful to anything original in the show, it just kind of took what people thought they remembered and what they thought it was and, and ran in that direction. It was, it was sad. They weren't what they should have been. This, however... This Kevin Smith series, I, I just I love the approach with this because I was so nervous that this was going to be, I don't know, poking fun or just too Kevin Smithy or, you know, God forbid, you know, a, a comedy thing like the you know the proposed thing with uh, with uh, what's his name Carrie, yeah. But it's not. It's it's nope. straight up science fiction. It's it's just taking the original concept, dusting it off, giving it a, a fresh coat of paint and a modernization that works. Dear JJ Abrams, here's how you do a reinvention. Love handy. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I tell you what, if I had a if I had a spare sixteen bucks, I would. I'd pick up these first four issues and send them to old JJ and go, yeah, with the, with that exact note. <laughs> This is how you do it properly. No, they're fantastic. Yeah. I think if you're not reading this and you're, you're roughly our age and you have fond memories of the show and haven't revisited it, you should go and pick it up because it is definitely, I think, one of the most surprising and enjoyable books currently being published. Uh, I don't read anything else from Dynamite, but I'm really intrigued by this Tarzan series they've got advertised. I've <laughs> actually been an, an on-again, off-again Dynamite reader when they've hit upon... Um, a franchise that that I had a personal interest in, and, and the biggest one prior to this uh, would be the Lone Ranger, which uh, I still lack the, like the last two or three issues to finish reading to have read the entire series. But that was fantastic. Was it good? It was much like this, where it wasn't so much picking up from any one incarnation as kind of taking the legend. Um, dusting it off, giving it kind of a, a fresh coat of paint and a, and a, you know, being both true to the original yet running its own direction. And it was great because that's a, that's, you know, as we've seen, you know, with, with a number of properties that have been reinvented, that is a tough thing to do. It really is. I mean, it's not a job, you know, as, as much as I might, uh, criticize and, and bitch and complain about these things. It's not a job I feel that I would be very good at. You know, to to take a beloved property or something that that is you know legendary or or whatever, and be able to do that successfully. It you know, I, I'll acknowledge that that has got to be a very difficult thing to do successfully. And you know, and, and success is is measured in so many different ways by so many different people, but at least with these two series, at least so far with the Bionic Man one, 
I feel like they've they've really done it well, where they have embraced the old, yet really gone in a, in a new direction that works without being slavish to the original one either. No, they have made some quite interesting divergences. Uh, and, but like you, yeah, they haven't gone anywhere that I've thought, ooh, no, yet. Right. I'm hoping they maintain that. But just some of the ads in these books, the lo- I, I like the Lone Ranger. Lo- Lone Ranger? Somebody mows your grass? Uh, <laughs> the Lone Ranger. I remember them, there's, there was a couple of t- t- were they TV movies, or did they make a film in the early 80s that I remember really enjoying? There was, a, there was the, the theatrical movie, which is almost universally panned, which is uh, The Legend of the Lone Ranger, which I still maintain is a good movie. I like that movie a lot. And I think a lot of the problem why that movie has, has gotten the guff that it has all these years is that it made a horrible mistake right before it came out, which was... Um, the producers of the film um, issued a cease and desist order to Clayton Moore, who was the original Lone Ranger on the TV series, yeah. that he could no longer appear in public as the Lone Ranger. And all that did was infuriate the fan base. So th- that movie could have come out, the, out of the gate and been the best thing ever. And it was still going to be hated and detested by hardcore Lone Ranger fans because they had basically pissed on Clayton Moore. Mm. So they shot themselves in the foot right out of the gate. And then the, and the movie came out and got just you know really bad reviews and everything. But I maintain if you're a Lone Ranger fan, that's a great place to start because that's a, a really – I think it's a solid movie. And it's very faithful to the Lone Ranger. Right. Um. I remember what I'm sure they must have been TV movies then, but I remember enjoying because I'm a, a bit of a sucker for westerns as it is. So if you're marrying a superhero with a western, well, the the thing that works with the Dynamite series is that for one, it's very faithful to the Lone Ranger. Um, it works for me. It speaks right to me because it really feels like more than like the original radio shows or more than the Clayton Moore stuff that it actually used legend of the lone ranger as kind of its feel for, for, or, you know, the basis for how the, the series would feel. Right. Cause the origin story plays heavily to that. But what really works well is they're obviously using a Batman model with the lone ranger which could make a lot of people go, I don't know about that, but it works really well. When when there's a point in the series where there's a big reveal and when it happens, you suddenly it just hits you. Holy cow, he's Batman of the old West. And when you get to that moment, it's pretty awesome. And right. I, I liked that a lot. I I would highly recommend that series. Right. Um the other one that sadly didn't last very long. Um, and I have not yet finished reading this series, so maybe it was deservedly canceled, but for at least like the first couple of story arcs I thought was phenomenal was, uh, Buck Rogers. That was really good too. Dynamite one. Yeah, that was from Dynamite. No, I've never read any of that either. And I like a bit of Buck Rogers. It was, I thought it was great right out of the, out of the gate. It was doing very well. And, uh. And then it was, I want to say it lasted maybe, maybe 12 issues and that was it. And I've picked almost that entire series up out of like the 50 cent bin. So, I mean, they're out there to be found on the cheap. 
Right. But it started off strong, and the and the first I, I think it was the first story arc, maybe the first two I forget. But then there was a break, and they had a filler, and for some reason it seemed like that filler may have killed the series because then it didn't last long after that. Because the there's a lovely advert at the back of this for a Flash Gordon series as well. That looks really interesting. I'm not much for Flash Gordon, but that does actually look really interesting. And the, the, they're doing the John Carter stuff. I don't know whether the how that's going to work out now that uh, is it Disney doing that film? Yeah, John Carter. Uh, yeah, I just saw the the trailer for that last night. We went to the the theater and I saw. I, I got to be honest. Not, I don't know. It doesn't really look like it's my thing, but I, I, I'll probably check it out at some point. I don't know that I'm going to rush right out to the theater to see it. But I uh, when I was a kid, I'm sorry. Say that again. I liked the books when I was a kid, the Edgar Rice Burroughs ones. Again, our Peter had them. Bringing it all full circle. You'd think we were professionals at this, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I've never read any of, the, of those books. I have read. Uh, I've read the first maybe half dozen of uh, of the Tarzan books by Burroughs, and I always wanted to read the Pellucidar books. I have a bunch of them. I've just never made time to actually read them. Right. I see here there's going to be a new uh, RoboCop series. There have been a number of RoboCop uh, series in recent years. I haven't read any of them, but I've often wondered if any of them are any good because I still say that's a concept, that's a franchise that that I think still has life in it. It just needs the right people. Yeah, see, mm, I don't know. If, if you're going to do RoboCop, do you think they would remake it? I don't want to see it remade, but at the same rate, it might be a little bit difficult now to 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 salvage what's left because to me, there's only ever been just RoboCop because I thought the second movie was atrocious and then I didn't even bother with the third movie or the TV show. So it becomes a matter of if you're going to salvage it, where do you pick up from? Do you pick yeah. up from the end of the first movie and pretend like none of the other stuff ever happened, which always threatens to um, seriously piss off and disenfranchise the people that may have actually embraced that material? Well, with RoboCop, could you not? You could just make a RoboCop movie. You you pick up these RoboCop. This is what happened, and go forward. So you're not negating what went before, but you don't have to acknowledge it either. Right. And- a good solid RoboCop movie. You could you can explain within the two hour framework of the film how we became that way. There's no need to have this remake, but we're having a remake of Spider Man, and that's only ten years old. So it's kind of I doubt that they would make one without starting at the beginning again. And then you get a bunch of people who don't go watching it because well I've seen this movie, and then it'll flop. And being Hollywood, they'll blame the concept. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a dangerous. It's a dangerous road to to travel because, on the one hand, I have been, you know, just vehemently opposed to a remake of RoboCop. But part of that was faulty math on my part because to me, RoboCop doesn't feel very old. That feels like a movie that really has not been around very long. But then, looking at it realistically, no, that movie's well over twenty years old by this point. Yeah. And so, yeah, it probably does fall in that realm of, you know, it's justified in maybe having a remake. But that's, I mean, it's a classic, you know? I mean, it is a a legitimate science fiction classic. And so then you you risk uh, 
you know, I mean, just Hollywood does not have a good track record with remaking movies, especially classics. So I don't know. I'm really torn between, you know, do you just do a straight up continuation or do you, you know, do you remake it and, and run that risk of, you know, for one that they'll just, you know, completely drop the ball or as you say, it could come out of the gate and be a fantastic movie, but then everybody just looks at it and goes, nah, I don't care to see this. I, I, you know, I saw the original. I love that one. I don't, I don't need this other one. And then it flops through no fault of his own. So I don't, I don't know. That's a tough call. But you know, I, I will back off a little bit from the from the idea that no, absolutely, they should not remake this movie because I don't know that that could be a, a an idea whose time has come that maybe it is time to you know dust that concept off and you know because if somebody had told me a couple of years ago that you know hey you know one day they're gonna they're gonna redo the six million dollar man as a as a comic and you know it'll be great I'd I'd have scoffed at the idea it's like no why don't why not just pick up where it left off and and why would you want to remake that and why would Kevin Smith of all people do it you know <laughs> but it's awesome I, I'm enjoying it I think it's a great book yes I it's one of the best books that's currently out though it's certainly the one I read first me too. <laughs> It is, yeah, every month it is. It's a, it's a top of the stack book every month. You're right, and they've got such goodwill with me now towards this that I am willing and able to look forward to the Bionic Woman. Where do you uh, where do you see this going? Where do you want it to go? Um, there's a part of it that, like you said, I would like to see constant upgrades. I think there is an interesting idea to be played with the that Steve then does constantly feel like a guinea pig. That he's just a constant experiment. Um, they've, I think they've seeded a storyline here. They, they do make a point of mentioning that this one, Steve, has an override. Whereas Hull, the $7 million man, for want of a better term, that's what we'll call him, doesn't have an override. So I think they've seeded a future plot line there. Um, I just want them to keep running with the concept. I want them to keep play it for real, play it as genuinely as you can, and keep going with it in a way that constantly entertains. I don't feel the need to reinvent it regularly. And I'm going to be very interested in seeing how they do feed the Bionic Woman into this. Have they announced who she'll be? Will she be Jamie? They've not said anything. They have merely announced that there will be a Bionic Woman comic book. And I think they've said it's scheduled to drop in May. But I could be wrong about that. I could have misread that. But to me, that's too early. They should have let this run on its own for a year or so before they tried to do any spin-offs. Uh, yeah, that I completely agree on. I, not only do I agree with that, I, I still am uncomfortable with the idea of them even doing that concept at all. Because as I say, when when in issue one, I forget exactly when it was, but when they first said her name was Jamie, uh, like, I, I, like I said, giant red flag went up. And I just thought, oh, please, dear God, don't let her be the bionic woman. So, yeah, if that's the direction they end up going, then, yeah, that, that bugs me greatly. Because I'd rather they did not. Um, you know, I, I honestly, I'm not sure where it's going. I'm not sure where I want it to go. Um, usually, I, I have <laughs> nothing but opinions on you know what I'd like to see or where I'd like them to go. At this point, I'm just kind of along for the ride. The only thing I can I can definitely think of are things I don't want to see. 
Um, now that they're doing that Bionic Woman, I guess that one's kind of going to have to be off my list. Um, the only other thing I can definitely think of, I don't want to see Bionic Bigfoot. <laughs> well, see, we're so surprised by how good this is. I would say maybe no concepts off the table. You know, let's see what they do with it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, maybe far enough down the line, Give it possibly. Before they do stuff like that. But like you I'd love to see an astronaut story of some kind. That one you pitched about the Mars idea is a brilliant idea. I'd love to see them do something like that with the bionics that they don't work in zero temperatures because they may not know that. See, I think they're going to have to come up with with bold stories for him because there there's two pitfalls I can see right out of the gate for them is that it'll fall into a cliche where all of his all of his enemies are likewise bionically powered which mm-hmm. i think the series kind of fell into that rut or um that it'll go the route of something like the adventures of superman where all of his bad guys are you know gangsters or something you know or or even if they make him like a an OSI operative where he's constantly going to like the Middle East or something. After a while, that that concept gets played out too. So they they you know they definitely have a challenge ahead of them. Is how do you keep it? You know, once you're past the origin story and once you're past the first big boss battle, you know the the bionic boss battle that you know definitely feels like it's building up. Once you're past that, what's the next story? You know, and how are you going to keep it fresh and interesting beyond that? That's the ride I'm actually curious about and, and looking forward to is, you know, at this point, like you say, they've generated a lot of good goodwill and I have faith in the series. I'm just curious to see, you know, what is that direction going to be? Because I don't want to, you know, have it just be him, you know, battling, you know, bank robbers. Yeah, bank robbers or, you know, quote unquote Nazi saboteurs or something. I want to see it be, I don't know, it's going to have to be original, you know, and <laughs> what is that originality going to be? Mm. And like we say, it's going to be interesting to see what Phil Hester does when he's running on his own. One idea that I think could actually be very, very interesting would be to eventually pit Steve, um, you know, who's been bionically enhanced to where he's now more machine than he is a human being, have him go up against somebody that would be organically enhanced to where you know somebody on a power level of say like the golden age superman but Mm -hmm. that this character got there you know quote unquote naturally through some sort of like say genetic manipulation or something like that to where he is fully human he's just superhuman whereas steve austin is superhuman yet it's not any you know none of it is organic i think that could be a very interesting dynamic and you know has great potential for a lot of looking inward by Steve Austin as, you know, damn, this guy's as good as me or maybe even better. And he didn't have to sacrifice any of his humanity to get where he's at. I think that could be a really interesting concept. So I don't know that. Well, we'll have to see how it plays out, I guess. Yeah. Well, the fifth issue is already out like you. I've not read it yet, but uh, I don't know how long they can pad out this pilot story for. (laughs) That is one thing is, uh, I have come to accept this as not only a, a, uh, what do you call it? 
uh, a trope of modern comics, but this is really something that I'll warn you right out of the gate if you plan to check out any other Dynamite titles. This is a Dynamite thing uh, for sure, especially with the Lone Ranger. Mm. Is It's a quick, quick read. Um, you know, for three ninety nine a pop, it yeah. does go awfully damn fast. And to its credit, this hasn't been that quick of a read. These these are meatier than say like the Lone Ranger. I mean, yeah. Lone Ranger is is literally you know you can you can head into the John intending to read it while you're you know sitting on the can and you know you no sooner sit down and you're like crap I should have brought three of these in with me because I'm done already you know. <laughs> Whereas this is a much longer book, you know, but at the same rate, still, I mean, these really, to me, they seem like they fly right by and, uh, you know, it, maybe it's just the old, you know, the old comics person in me, but, uh, it seems like to me that, that the first say two or three issues of this back in the day would have been the first issue, you know, whereas now they're, they're, they're padded out, but what I'm hoping they'll do is that if this fourth issue truly is the end of the first arc, I'm hoping that they'll be smart and steal a page from, I, I know boom did this recently with uh, planet of the apes. And I've seen some other companies do it too, where they collect the first story arc immediately and slap it out there as a cheap trade just to try to get more interest in the book. That mm. would be a brilliant move on their part if they did that, because you know, like I say, I, I, you know, we both agree this is a phenomenal title. I'm just worried that I'm, I hope it's finding a readership. I hope people are discovering the book and reading it and enjoying it and not just, you know, looking at it and going, you know, e either by Kevin Smith's name or the concept of the $6 million man just looking at it and going, I don't need to pick that up. Yeah. Well, the thing that the Planet of the Apes thing, you mentioned that they'd put the four issues in trade. I can't remember if it was on Facebook or on your forum. And then I saw it in Forbidden Planet and it was only like four. Five ninety nine. So I thought, oh, go on, I'll give this a go. Scott says it's good. I love Planet of the Apes, and it's really good. It is. It's, it's solid. I think that's a great way to go. You know, as soon as the the initial issues are out, slap it out there in a cheap trade. You know, right as the next story arc is beginning. Yeah, and you're not three ninety nine for a two minute read. Exactly. Meaty, but again, you're not paying ten, fifteen quid for it or twenty, thirty dollars for it. You're getting it for just over five pounds, which I think it was ten dollars in the states, wasn't it? And so you're getting something that's not expensive, and it's a good lead-in to you buying even more of these or picking up the monthly book. And I think that's definitely the way to go with this because I want more people to be reading this because it is really good. Well, for some uh, bizarre reason that I'll be quite honest, totally freaks me out. People actually listen to us. And they actually respect our opinions. So, uh, you know, the fact that you and I have, have teamed up to, to issue this uh, directive that uh, our legions of listeners need to get off their asses and get out there and read this, hopefully that will generate at least, you know, a little more uh, interest in the title. So, I think people listen to you. I don't think you have a rat's ass what I say. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true, and you know it. I'm always amazed that people listen to my dribble. <laughs> I, you know, in all in all honesty, as much as it does completely freak me out, at the same rate, I hope I never lose that that sense of being a little bit weirded out about it. Because I think the moment you lose that is where you start to get big headed about things. And I never want to get big headed about any of this podcast stuff because having having not long ago met someone 
who is uh, a quote unquote uh, podcasting celebrity and having him be kind of a, uh, a snob about the whole thing. There was, there was one side of me that was crushed and then there was un- the other side of me that just wanted to palm swat him and be like, dude, you're a friggin' podcaster. Come on. You know, there's no celebrity involved here. Stop being a prima donna, you know, because that annoyed the hell out of me. It was like, I do the same thing and there's not a big deal to it. You buy a microphone, you turn on a recorder and you run your mouth for an hour. It's not, a, you know, <laughs> there's not a lot to it. So don't act like, you know, you're, you know, whatever. Guys shooting the crap about funny books. Exactly. It's the end of the day. We're chatting in the pub to our friends but we're doing it in a microphone. Absolutely. Hey, you know, speaking of, uh, of chatting in the pub, um, I'm going to bring this back around to our, our pre-recording conversation that uh, I know you're, uh, you're coming around to the States here in a, in a few months. So uh, I don't know if you're a drinking man at all, but uh, I, I want to do that at some point. I owe you a drink, so we're going we're gonna to do that. We'll get together and we'll, we'll shoot the breeze face-to-face, and maybe we'll even record a little bit of it for our friends. So. We should meet at downtown Disney and do that. You know, I was actually thinking something like uh, like the Rose and Crown over in, <laughs> over in Epcot, <laughs> but you probably that's probably the last place you want to go is like right back uh, right back to the UK. Yeah. <laughs> this drivel you're serving me. <laughs> Bring me a Jack Daniels, wench. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzogor of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.